The views and opinions expressed by the guests on this podcast are that of their own. In no way, shape, or form do they reflect the official policy or position of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. You've descended into the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. A commercial diving podcast by working divers for divers. This episode is brought to you by Joint Zone Equipment. They offer hydraulic power packs, underwater hydraulic tools, and their revolutionary underwater lift bags. Their underwater lift bags have raised the manufacturing standards across the industry. No glue is used in the manufacturing process, and all the seams and attachment points are radio frequency welded using a material that provides a higher puncture resistance and a lighter weight. So make your next joint zone purchase from one of the stocking distributors such as Rental Tools Online or Amron International. JointZoneEquipment.com. Leading from below. Welcome to the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Yet again, we welcome Bobby Chacon into the dive shack. Bobby. Hey, guys. Great to be back. Yep. I'm your host, LB Diver. This is Johnny still. Double pops. Double pops. <laughs> kind of stole that from Ambrosia Terrabone. He does a double snap, so we do the double pops. <laughs> nice. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny has a message to convey from uh, oh, his brethren. Lamar says, uh, what's up, Hollywood? Oh, good, good. Yeah. Tell him I said hello. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so uh, uh, we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we did not talk about. We touched on it in the first uh, in the first episode, part one. Just a dabble. Just a little taste. We did want to go back and, and talk a little bit about uh, Lacey Peterson. That was a, mm-hmm. a, a case that's still active. The Innocence Project took up that endeavor recently. And uh, we just wanted to get some background on the kind of the stuff that you saw. Why were you there? Why did you get called in to the Lacey Peterson sure, case? Sure. So... Um- Modesto PD had the had the case, and Lacey disappeared Christmas Eve. I think it was April, sometime in April of the following year. Her her and Connor washed up on the beach of the shores of Richmond Bay and found by somebody walking their dog, I believe. Uh, Connor, they were about a mile apart on the beach. That's where their body. That's where the bodies were found. Connor looked, and and I only know this from seeing the photographs afterwards when we were briefed on it. When we went up, but Connor looked like he had just been delivered. He was pristine. And their their working theory was that Lacey was weighted down, face down, and Connor was in her womb the entire time. Now, the night before they washed ashore, and I think they washed ashore a night apart or a couple of, there was a, a time between the, their discoveries anyway. There was a storm in that bay, which with a big storm surge, and their Modesto PD needed divers to come in because even though they had found Connor and they found Lacey, Lacey was significantly decomposed and particularly she was missing her hands, head and feet. Um, and the theory was the weights were tied. Um, so in his in his storage shed, in Scott Peterson's storage shed, they had found a, a, like a series of those clay pots you'd find in Home Depot and a garden center or something. Those like clay kind of pots and bags of cement mix. And so the theory was he, you know, put cement in these flower pots and put like U-bolts or something in them. And then when they cured, when they hardened, he knocked away the, the flower pots and now he had the weights. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there was residue of the concrete powder and of the broken flower pots in his storage unit. So the theory was that he attached weights to each wrist, to each ankle and around her neck. And so if you imagine she's face down in, and, and that portion of Richmond Bay is only, I don't know, it goes from only about eight to 15 feet of water. It's not deep, but it is subject to tidal action because, you know, it's, it's part of the bigger, it's part of the bigger San Francisco Bay. And so over four months, you can imagine of tidal action working up and down, her body was moving up and down where a body will weaken is around the joints. And so the theory is the salt water and the tidal action work to kind of weaken those joints and that storm surge then kind of busted Lacey loose, leaving behind the things that were still tied, meaning her head, hand and feet. And I know this is graphic and I, and I apologize, but um, so we were called in to, to find those, the weights and possibly the, the rest of Lacey. And then the theory was that as her body tumbled along the bottom, once it broke free, that a rock or something tore into her womb. And of course, she's in salt water for so long, it's going to be really sensitive, really, you know, the tissue was broken down a little bit. And then Connor was ejected mm -hmm. uh, during that role. So he that's why he looked so pristine, because he was actually protected for those three or four or five months, four months, I think, that that was the theory, the working theory. So we were called, along with a number of other teams, because it's a, such a large search area that they had, we probably had a, maybe a dozen teams. I mean, Marin County was there, Contra, Contra Costa County was there, San Francisco PD was there. We had a bunch of dive teams there, and we all worked out of the Coast Guard, uh, Coast Guard station there on Treasure Island, uh, that bridge that okay. runs from Oakland yeah. over to San Francisco. Um, so we nice. were all, we would report there every morning, and the Coast Guard had a cutter kind of in the middle of the search area coordinating. And then when we cleared an area, we would go over to the Coast Guard cutter and then we would one of us would kind of go in and make a report and they were coordinating the whole search area which areas had been covered and stuff it had to be a lot of coordination in, in a search that large with that many teams working the thing was when when local pds come in and they kind of lend assistance to other pds it's mutual aid right so at the end of the day modesto pd who had the case um, had a like a, at the Coast Guard station, we would all come back, and then there was a table set up, and they would be all, all the other PDs, the counties, the, the city, whatever, the local cities and stuff would kind of line up at the table and fill out some kind of paperwork because Modesto was paying for their overtime or something. There was a cost that Modesto was incurring to have those teams there. The FBI comes for free. We don't. We we're not mutual aid. We we just have a budget. The FBI every year asks Congress portion of our budget to be earmarked for both international assistance and local police assistance domestically. And so we have a large budget that just allows us to kind of deploy in assistance of local or state law enforcement without us being part of the case. It's just pure assistance. And we have a budget for that. And we never ask for money from the local PDs. The result of that is over the course of a couple of weeks, you know, teams would go home, number one, their their home departments needed them back. They, a lot of the smaller departments can't be without their guys because some of them are patrol guys, whatever, and they've got to have them back. Um, we we had plenty of time and we don't cost anything. So we were the last team standing. So as as there were less and less teams up there, we were the we were the ones that was there to the end, simply because not because we're any better or anything, but simply yeah. because we were free um, and we had the time. Um, the, that That's one thing the Bureau always gave us. And I was really appreciative of that. The laboratory 
when they funded the dive team, they really funded it well. And, and they gave us uh, the time and the equipment to train properly and train right and stuff. And um, so anyway, so we were searching and everybody was searching for those items, for those five weights mm-hmm. and whatever that might be attached to. The, Scott was last seen um, in that John boat leaving a small island in, in the bay. And there was the person had saw him leaving. And this is all my recollection. I don't know if any of this came out of trial. It, it could be it could be faulty after this many years, but that there was a tarp in the boat, a blue tarp, and he was pushing the boat back out into the water from from shore. And again, their working theory, he maybe he may have gotten out there, tried to think about maybe burying her or getting her out of the boat while he's standing next to the boat, because at that point I think she was like with the baby, she may have been between 160, 180 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so getting that, somebody like that out of a small jumble by yourself, you can see how you could fall in the water or you could kind of topple that boat. But he didn't, he pushed the boat back out from that little island and then went off on his merry way. We don't know where he was. Whoever saw him do that was didn't see him after that. So I always like to start a search in the last scene point. So I wanted to go to that beach and work your way, you know, the, from the beach to the parking, to the boat ramp where we know he put in, because remember he had that, he had like a ticket, a parking ticket they found. Like when you enter that boat ramp parking lot, you pay and you get this kind of time stamp, date stamp ticket. And they had that for him. That marina, is that the Richmond Marina there? Where, uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I, I did a job there last year and we used that marina oh, really? to station. Yeah, from... that's it. The Richmond Bay Marina. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we had to work yeah. at the, uh, the oil facility down the road, the Richmond Chevron Long Wharf facility. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like yeah, near so there. Yeah, so that's huh? exactly the area oh, wow. we were in. I mean, that's that's and because of the storm, yeah. they they accessed a bunch of university folks and academia and climate people and and stuff and wave and 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 tide people who are experts. And I, I don't begrudge those those folks. You know, they do great work, and and we've actually used them to great effect. But in that particular case, they they kind of reverse engineered. They 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 knew where. Lacey and Connor had washed ashore and they put a bunch of data into their computer about tidal action and wave action and currents Mm. and wind and all of this stuff. And they reversed engineered it to say, okay, here's where you should be searching because this is where they probably originated if this is where they ended up. And so that area did not include the area near the island where he was supposedly seen. I've always like had an inkling of wanting to go back and search from that island out to think of whether he, whether those four or five concrete blocks are still somewhere between the island where he was seen and the boat ramp where we know he launched. Um, you draw a straight line and you you kind mm-hmm. of search along that line. We we didn't do that um, because we were just there to do whatever Modesto wanted us to do, and so I made my opinion known. But it's their case. We're there to just to do what, what they want us to do. And that's all. We don't, I don't press a point like that or anything like that. So, so we searched for three or four weeks, um, a couple of days. I was the one to go over to the Coast Guard cutter and give report and, and, you know, show the map of where we had finished our searches for the day. And there was a couple of times, I think Lacey's mom and sister uh, were on the boat having lunch with us, with some of the divers, you know, just expressing their appreciation and stuff because it was long hours and stuff. Um, but I, I know that after we left, they called in a contractor and they did one of those AUVs. And I think the company came for free because they were, you know, they see saw it as a way to kind of validate their, okay. their machine and stuff. 
it was a really cool one mm-hmm. and it just runs a pattern with with sonar i want to say they would it was like 11 hours a day that this thing just ran for i don't know how many days um they clearly didn't yeah didn't find i it, mean at but, that point uh, you're looking for like a rock it's just a yeah. thing of concrete the hands and everything it's probably not going to be there right especially if they no, separate they, they, it's going to float off and or uh, consumed by yeah. uh, sea life because you know that bay i mean there's a lot of fishermen over there there's a lot mm-hmm. of fish life and stuff and the, and, and the salt water so you have crabs and and other things you're you probably know, looking for are, bones uh, at this point if it's a full body that's one thing yeah but if if it's really you know the smaller it is the harder the sonar it is to pick it up and if it looks like a natural occurrence it looks like a tree stump or whatever or rock, the sonar is, is of lesser value in those cases. Yeah. So, Bobby, one of the interesting things that you said on another podcast that I listened to that you were on, Real Crime Profiles, if you guys have a chance that are listening, check them out. Really good podcast. There's members on that podcast that worked with you on the Criminal Minds TV show. Sure, Definitely Jim check- Clemente, my mentor, my writing mentor, Jim Clemente. He's, a, he's who the that show is kind of based on. Nice. Big shout out to those guys. You had mentioned on their podcast that there was a study done that Lacey Peterson's body may have gotten a little bit of sun, which means that she may have been dumped shallow. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So imagine a body in the water weighted down at the ankles, wrists and neck and the tide coming in and out. So at high tide, it's, it's tight, right? It's tight. The arms and legs are tight to the, to the, whatever's binding them to those weights. And then at low tide, the body sinks probably down below the water, maybe toward the bottom. And then, and, and as the body moves, so, you know, because again, I know this is graphic, but if she wasn't eviscerated, if, if she was off gassing, that's why bodies float, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because the gases that decompose in our, in our tissues, some bodies don't float because the, you know, if, if a hunter wants to, then knows what they're doing, they're going to cut up the, 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 the midsection and eviscerate the person so that the, the pocket where that gas would k- gather is gone. So the gas would just simply dissipate into the water column. But, but most don't, most people are not that knowledgeable. So, so if her body was intact and it acts as kind of a, a, a vessel for holding on to that, those gases that are occurring because the tissue is breaking down, um, you know, then it's going to have that upward momentum. Mm-hmm. It's going to want to float. And so that's where the strain is going to come in. And there was some, I remember some talk about when she was recovered, there was some, still some skin on her back. Um, I saw the pictures. There wasn't much left of her midsection in the, the front, but um, in the back. And then they could, they could tell supposedly that parts of her body or parts of her back, at least at times, was subject to sun, sunburn or damage from the sun, okay. whatever that looks like on a body like that. So I didn't see that. That was just one of those things that I had heard from, you know, days and weeks, you know, hanging out with the investigators and talking about all the different possibilities of, yeah. of what might have happened. Because it's just a theory, you know, mm-hmm. we don't really know. This is, that's why I keep repeating that word theory, because these are all just working theories. Until we find if that, if we find the pots, then the theory becomes reality. Okay. But it's still, to this point, just a theory. Right, that's true. That's why they brought you in to look for those pots, because, I mean, right. you weren't looking for the pieces of the body because they probably floated off or they got consumed or whatever. Right. But the pots would prove the theory that he, Scott Peterson, formed those pots in his garage because there was evidence there showing right. the cement and the clay pots. And yeah, when, it's yeah. like the missing piece. Okay. So we have to go find the pots then. 
So Bobby, yeah, me, that's what I said. I was, and Johnny. Man, you get out of my mind, dude. Yeah, I we was can like, take the moth and nickel boat out there. Yes. Next time we do the Richmond Chevron Long Wharf, and find the pots and and yeah. and, and, and just open and close this thing. I'm surprised. There's got to be some kind of uh, scuba divers in the true crime fan base. Get out there. No, we're not advocating yeah. you to go out there. And search. <laughs> Those waters are tough. They're a little bit rough. So I am advocating. Yeah. The seas are crazy yeah. out there, which would, again, the reason why we're talking probable theories, he went to that island because the seas may have been a little bit too rough to dump a body with weights like that. Right. If he were to take That's that right. boat out, the small little skiff that he had, if he were to take that out there, four foot seas, which are pretty typical, three, yeah. three to four out there in the in the bay, he would take on water and flip himself over, right? So, right, and I think that's I think that's one of the arguments that his defense made. Yeah, in his defense, they, I th- I think they even had an expert. I want to say do a demonstration of a similar size boat and what Lacey would have been like the weight and the size. It, I think the person toppled the boat over. I think I'm not quite yeah. sure. No, he, he did. I, I saw the video on some of these other uh, oh, okay. documentaries and stuff, but it looks silly. He overdid it. It's like one of those. Uh, uh, oh yeah, infomercials. Infomercials where they're like, oh, yes. are yeah. you trying to dump a body? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what a mess. <laughs> yeah, they want they want you to like it the infomercial like where that. they want you to buy like a, a hose reel or something. And so like nobody that doesn't have this hose reel, the hose is all out of control. The person should <laughs> exactly. angry himself. Like that's know, what but, that but video buy their hose like. reel and nothing. Blah, 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 blah. That's what that video looked like <laughs> in my eyes. Yeah. So you on the same podcast we talked about earlier, you said one of the things he could have done, and the reason why he could have been on that island where he was spotted was he put her body over the side and then dragged her body out a little bit. Right. Which would, again, lend a little bit of credence to the theory that she got a little bit of sunlight because he dumped her shallower than he expected. Right. It may not have been in the middle of the bay. Yeah, because you have to understand, like, he's not a seasoned murderer, which is probably why he's in jail. Uh, You know, and and so he's probably, there's probably a large amount of panic in him Mm-hmm. Um, and stuff. And so he's not going to do exactly what he wanted to do or plan to do. And I think that in those situations, people do act a little faster than they probably should or wanted to. He wanted to get her in the water and get out of there. That's a high traffic area. That is a high traffic yeah. area. There's water taxis that are constantly going in and out. There's tugboats that are going in and out. No reason to have a tarp in your boat. So it's going to be a yeah. suspect if someone sees it. So right. he's definitely trying right. to I dump mean, it as fast as he can. He probably tried to get out to the bay and took on a little bit of water and then went to that island and then dragged her over a little bit as far as he could. Yeah, I mean, if he's in, if he's in, you know, knee or waist deep water at uh, near that island, and then he takes her out and then he kind of tows her out there and then lets her go. Um, that could have been something also. And you know, it's not easy to tow in a little boat like that either. If she's on the side, if she's yeah. uh, along the side. You know, it's still not an easy thing to do. So he probably let her go before he wanted to yeah. and in shallower water than he wanted to probably. And, I mean, I, the only thing that probably saved him from too many people being out there. Remember, this is, I think, Christmas Day or, oh. or yeah. I think it might have been Christmas yeah, Day, right? I mean, yeah. So so that probably kept a lot of people off the water. Christmas morning, there's not a lot of people out there, you know, fishing and stuff like that. So Yeah, that's true. And it's wow. one of those cases where there really wasn't any direct evidence, right? Right. But it's just 
Well, look, I mean, that that's, that, but that's most cases, particularly murder cases. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the reason, you know, circumstantial evidence sometimes can be just as powerful as direct evidence if, if there's enough of it, you know what I mean? And, and the, most of the time, you never really want to reward criminals for being good at what they do. And when people use the term, oh, like when they downgrade circumstantial evidence, I'm like, well, all you're doing is you're, you're rewarding the criminal for being really good at being a criminal because, you know, they only left circumstantial evidence behind. But I mean, look, any detective will tell you when a wife dies or disappears, you know, suspect number one is always going to be the husband. A lot of the time, that's the right suspect. Yeah. Especially when you have a mistress that you're texting during funeral proceedings and exactly. vigils and stuff like that. Right. Right. I don't know, Johnny. He just Can wanted you- to get it in, man. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Mm-hmm. I mean, Johnny. Johnny I mean, it's Ringo. Not, it's not the first, it's yeah, not the first time I mean, we've seen that yeah. motive, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, hey. That's true. Uh, and one of the other theories was a the whole Satan worshiper thing, you know, with the whole hands, heads, and, Here we go. you know, legs and everything. But as far as uh, that theory, when her body was found, did it look like it was clean cuts? Like somebody would do it as part of a ritual? You couldn't tell. There no. was too much decomposition. There okay. was too much decomposition from what I saw the photos. I mean, I'm not, I didn't yeah. do it. I obviously wasn't there for an autopsy. I didn't see the autopsy results. I may have read them at the time. In my recollection of the photographs of the recovery of the body was not enough to make those kind of determinations. Okay. There wasn't enough there. All right. You know, I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the Delphi, Indiana case, the two little girls who were murdered and they got a picture of the guy walking across the bridge. I know not down the hill. It's, it was called down the hill. Cause the, one of the two girls actually got a picture of the guy walking across this railroad bridge during this, at this hike. And anyway, so it took him five years, I think. And, and Susan Hendricks, a reporter for CNN wrote a book called down the hill. Cause you hear the oh, guy nice. on her, her cell phone, one of the little girls, the cell phones was recovered. And now they're trying to bring in this satanic worship thing and their client didn't do it. And the kids were killed through some satanic worship thing. But it just triggered my memory when you said that satanic nice. worship thing. That's another thing that kind of people bring up. Really? The wise defense attorneys. So that's a common yeah. thing to blame the devil. The devil made me do it. I guess. Yeah, I guess. Make it look witchy. Yeah. yeah. You got to remember the, the you know, I, I just actually finished being a juror on a five-month murder trial. First time in my life I was a juror, believe oh, wow. it or not. You know, a career in law enforcement and I'm a lawyer, and I still got on the <laughs> How did, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. How did you make it through the gamut? <laughs> on a murder case, believe yeah. it or not. It was a murder case, and it took five months to try the case. So, yeah, so so the defense doesn't have to prove anything. They just have to throw it throw it out there, right? Mm-hmm. The prosecution has to do all the proving. So, like, when they say satanic worship, they don't have to prove that. They just have to kind of – because they doubt. only have to get one doubt in one juror's mind. Wow. Um, and and so they don't really have a high burden, the defense. They just they can come up with anything and just throw it out there. They don't have to produce a witness. They don't have to produce documents, you know, photographs. They can just say, oh, we think this might happen. So, yeah. So so as a juror in this trial, I, you know, I, I really watch because I've been I've been at the prosecution table in my own trials, in my own cases, many times. And it's always like. The, we have such a burden beyond a reasonable doubt to put all this proof in. It's got to be direct. It's got to be there. To, you know, and the defense can just say whatever they want. And just they, all they have to do is kind of form one little doubt in one person's mind. Yeah. Right now we're kind of living in a society where all that stuff is, oh, maybe he didn't do it. Like the whole making a murder, that Netflix documentary, that just opened the floodgates mm-hmm. oh, to a, a bunch of this show. stuff. But the dude's yeah, a scumbag yeah. and he probably did it. 
Well, did you do right, it, right. Brendan? He probably he did it because he got sent <laughs> back in later know. on. Yeah. Didn't he? Yeah, wasn't there somebody else that he was? Yeah, his. Was he suspected to murder somebody else? Yeah, yeah. That's what sent yeah. him in prison where he is now because of somebody else. He, right. He called this. He. he I, I don't mean to laugh, but he called a photographer into for auto trader type of thing, and right. she ends up missing and being murdered on his property. Ugh. Yeah, weren't her bones found in his like fire pit? Yes. Like his yeah. fire pit. So I'm yeah. like, come on. Really? Setting him up, Maybe dude. he should have done the first time. I, I don't think they would set him up it's again. <laughs> you know. But anywho, yeah. these organizations get involved and then they take the case and next thing you know, murderer might be walking loose on the streets again. I, I do like look, the Innocence Project does really good work and and uh, however I've seen them actually catch a little bit of grief for taking up Scott Peterson's case. Because it's not the typical kind of case that they take up. Uh so I'm not sure. If he's got somebody outside with influence with the LA Innocence Project or what, but it, it's it doesn't seem to me the typical type of case that they that they take up. W- who knows? Yeah, and we'll see. Yeah, later on down the road, how this all shakes out. So, Johnny, you have no, any questions? No, that's good. All right, that's that's crazy that I was working in that area. Yeah, you were right. I, there. I literally drove our boat past where she was found, right in that little <laughs> bay where it's shallow by the yeah, houses and right. stuff. Yep. Next to it, like yeah. a, I, I think there's like a derelict old pier there. <clears throat> Did you too, feel nearby. eerie or no? No, because I didn't know that's you where she was found. No, I didn't even know. <laughs> I don't follow that stuff like yeah. you, Johnny. I, well, I didn't follow the. I didn't no. follow that one. It's my wife knows all about that. Okay. I don't know anything about that one. Well, can you talk a little bit about uh, the criminal mind stuff that you did? Since I brought it up, you were sure, a writer so, on that. <clears throat> yeah, I retired in uh, 2014, and I moved to Rio de Janeiro, and I was living there. Um, and I was walking my dogs along the beach of, of, of uh, Copacabana and Ipanema every day, working oh, out. Nice. My wife was going to work. My wife was producing the Olympics in 2016, so we moved down there in 2014. I get a call from a friend, a retired agent, and we all, after 2016, we were always planning to come back to LA anyway. Um, so he, he, I get an email, and it's like, hey, they're looking for, they got a, Criminal Minds has a new franchise, a spinoff. They're looking for a guy to be on set to work with the actors and directors. And he goes, you'd be perfect for it. So my wife and I talked about it and I started traveling from Rio back to LA once a month or every other month um, because she said, this is a good opportunity. And then maybe it'll, when we move back, it'll be more work for you, uh, retirement work. So I said, yeah, it's something I, you know, I was interested in. So I got on a show called uh, Criminal Minds Beyond Borders. So we had the main Criminal Minds, which was on for 15 years and now has kind of reinvented itself on Paramount Plus and streaming. So Criminal Minds Beyond Borders was the same show, but a different team of profilers going overseas. So every every episode, instead of going to Detroit or Minneapolis or Chicago, our, we were going to Paris or Bangkok or wherever. And it was uh, Gary Sinise was our lead. Nice. Uh, Alana De La Garza, the co-lead, and she's now on the FBI series on CBS. And Gary, of course, everybody knows Gary. Is Lieutenant Dan. In fact, this is... Gary's uh, foundation. This is Gary, the Gary Sinise Foundation hat I'm wearing. Gary is a great guy. Nice. We're still really good friends. Daniel Henney was on that show and, and Henny Funky. The great, great cast, but it only lasted two years. But I was on set. So I would work with the actors and directors and some of the writers, but I wasn't in the writer's room. So after the second year, that show ended. It didn't survive. So then I was pulled back over by my friend, Jim Clemente, who is uh, was a, cr- a famed criminal profiler at the BAU and was writing and producing on um, the, the mothership, we call it, the regular Criminal Minds show on CBS. So I went in there with him into the writer's room. That They were in, I think, season 13 of 15, and then season 15, it ended on CBS. And like I said, it kind of 
it, it kind of had new birth on, on Paramount Plus in a, in a different way. But so Jim and I worked together. I worked with all the writers on Criminal Lines the last two seasons. And then I got to write a co-write with Jim, one of the final episodes, uh, the fourth the fourth to the last episode, I think. So that got me my writing credit that I nice. needed to get into the Writers Guild. Love and, it. Um, and yeah, so it was great working. So I had both the experience on set working with the actors. And, and that's why I got called when the Rust thing happened with Alec Baldwin, because I've worked with actors on sets with guns, mm-hmm. with blanks, with fake guns, with real guns. I've done all of that with actors and, and how we do it and, and things like that. And so um, and then after that, I moved into the writer's room, which I love and I want to get back to. Um, and, and the writer's room was was great. And so I've written my own scripts. And I've written pilots, my own shows and stuff. And uh, so then it ended on CBS and then it was off totally for a year or two or three. And then it was reborn on Paramount plus, which is where it is now. Yeah. Nice. But I'm not involved. Uh, me and Jim are not, okay. not involved oh, okay. in, the, in the new iteration of it. Um, it's a, it's a kind of a different show. It's, it's what we call serialized. Whereas on CBS, it was called a procedural, which means one case, one hour each week. It's a different case. Um, start to finish in that one hour. And um, the serialized version of, you know, these streaming shows, it's like one case, over 10 hours or eight hours episodes. So it's one case going the whole season. And the, the season is only, you know, eight or 10 episodes. Whereas when we were on CBS, our seasons ran anywhere from 22 to 25 episodes. You know, it ran from September all the way to kind of April mm-hmm. and May. So it's a different type of show. Um, a serialized show is one case that's stretched out over many episodes where a procedural show is basically one case per episode, okay. which is mainly network television is all <clears throat> like that. Uh, law and order yeah like the law, law and order stuff. procedurals where it's one at one case one episode that's really cool man so do you really like that is 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 that like become a new passion of yours oh yeah nice yeah, i love it i love it i i i've written a couple of pilots for shows that i think would be a hit oh, one great. i'd love to hear them has to do one happens to be about the fbi dive team Ooh, so there you go that's think, see you know, that's what i'm done I've never seen any of those shows. My wife, oh yeah, and no one's done a dive show. Does it? You know, they've done like everything else: fire, hospitals, law firms, SWAT teams. You know, you had the unit, you have SWAT, you have Chicago Fire, you have the Smoke Jumper show. I forget what the name of that one is. You know, so you have all of that. No one's done the underwater stuff. And and when I pitched it to certain producers, their eyes glaze over because they all say the same thing, which is a load of crap they'll say oh it's too expensive to shoot underwater oh, i'm like well, silly two things there's two reasons number one it's not and number two the whole show isn't underwater <laughs> yeah. like if you look at chicago fire the entire 60 minutes they're not standing in fire <laughs> you know it, it's a it's a tool like to backdraft. tell a story yeah right? yeah it's not like because fire is expensive too by the way you know fire is expensive to shoot around you got you got to have a lot of lot of safety equipment and you got to have a lot of insurance and that's what drives the price up. But but the, they have like one fire show. You know, they're not standing in fire. <laughs> they're telling the story about what happens back in the firehouse, you know, the, the interrelationships with the people and so, hey, interesting characters. And that's what it makes a show. You know, the dive show, the dive part of it is simply like where they're based. You know, we, we would have a mm-hmm. really cool dive locker. I'm still working on, on pitching that show. That'd be pretty rad. Man, I mean. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to see some of your work. I, yeah, I'm glad someone else, because I also have treatments. Yeah. Of underwater mm. shows and or movies. Mm. Yeah. But they'll never see the light of day because I'm, I'm too nervous to show anybody. All right. He has <laughs> well, a show. I will, I will tell you this. If, if you one thing to do is register it, you can register it with the, the WGA. Is that like a non-member price and a member price? Okay. And then you can actually just register it with the uh, copyright office. Okay. Um, 
just protect your work. You know what I mean? Just it's, there's a small fee and, and then it's registered and you're protected. And then if you tell somebody about it, you know, if anybody ever goes out and makes that thing, then, then you're protected. Okay. We need to um, do that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. Great. Yeah. Awesome. You know, all of my work, the first thing I do is write up an eight or 10 page summary and register it uh, with a couple of oh, characters wow. and a couple of storylines. So <laughs> you look forward to seeing some of your work out there in uh, Hollywood, which is awesome. Okay. Love it. Okay. So uh, yeah. did Alec Baldwin malicious intent or no, Alec, no, just, no, just no, Alec, no malicious Alec intent. He's like, he's, he seems like the nicest guy. I love him. You know, but it's no, there's crazy. no malicious intent. There was gross negligence, okay. but there wasn't malicious intent. He, he pulled the trigger. He claims he didn't, but he pulled the trigger. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was, I, I've always maintained there are three people at fault. The armorer, the first assistant director who took the gun from the armorer and gave it to Alec, and then Alec himself. I mean, the final responsibility is always the person holding the gun, pulling the trigger. Uh, but but there's a chain of responsibility there, and, and they all screwed up. And the whole reason you have safety briefings and stuff like that, and everybody rolls their eyes, right? I don't know, safety oh, yeah. briefing. But you do it because that's why, because things can get really bad really fast if you just kind of poo-poo those things. So so um, that would have never happened on my, when I talked to like Gary Sinise, you know, a lot of Dale Gossett, Daniel Henney, you know, I, Andy Funky, I would start my briefing every time we had a gun and I would start, and they knew exactly what I was going to say because it's the same thing. You know, the four was a firearm and they would like parrot it back to me, like almost mocking me, you know, but I knew that they were listening because they, they were, they were mocking <laughs> me by parroting what I was going to say back then. But, but it's only because we drilled it into their heads over and over and over again. And that was fine. They could mock me all day long because I knew they were listening. I knew they knew it. You can't, you just can't short circuit that stuff. You can't cut corners on that stuff and, and stuff's going to happen. You know, that's not the first person to be killed on a movie no. set. And a lot of times no. on, on movie and television sets, when some people get killed, it's because corners have been cut. Which is know? so weird. So, How does a light round get into a TV gun? Yeah. I, I mean, I know like I've worked with actors who like to work with real guns because of the heft. You know, mm -hmm. if you hold, a, you know, an actor doesn't want to act like something's heavy. Because that's just a, another thing they have to act, mm. you know. So if it's really heavy, they don't have to act as if it's heavy. If you give them a plastic prop gun, you know, then they they it's in their head that they have to act like this thing's heavy, and they could overact that point, you know. And, and and so they just give me, you know, plug it or make it somehow inoperable, but it's the same real gun because it has the same weight to it and the heft to it. You know, that's what right. they like. It mm. helps the acting, and, and you know, and there are ways to make something inoperable. There are you know, and in this movie, they wanted the authentic look of that real gun but there's certainly ways to remove a firing pin or to make it inoperable and still have the actual gun there you know yeah, um, that's up then, to the armor i'm sure what about lee? lee yeah and of course that armor was fairly young she was only an armorer because her dad was some legendary armorer mm -hmm. and he got her you know into the business and um and then again they were plinking i don't know if you know the plinking thing they were plinking they were in on breaks and the plinking you know they were oh. shooting at uh cans Right. On fences because it was so that's how the live round got in there yeah so they so they were on on occasion like the crew was going to go playing around if they had a couple hours off or something and go and do oh, a little thinking and you know poking yeah. knocking cans down and stuff Ugh. but you, you should never even have live ammo nope. on a set there's no reason to. yeah bruce lee's son didn't die from Brand, a live brandon he, lee, it was right? yeah brandon it wasn't it wasn't a live round it was the water, I don't know, something. Yeah, it was wadding from yeah. a, from a, from a, uh, from a. That was just a freak. Yeah. Well, that yeah. family's cursed, but you know. Yeah. I mean. yeah. Yeah. 
But we we didn't even do that. Like after a while, CBS was like, because they like the they used to fire blanks because you could see the muzzle flash and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But now you can do that with CGI. Right. You know, you don't have to use that blank. I mean, you can have something to make the noise. Again, the noise helps the actors, right? Because the noise is real. The noise makes them react. You know, if they put the noise in afterwards, then the actors have to act like they just heard it. Right. You know, it's easier for them to act if they actually heard something. So you make a blank that doesn't have that muzzle flash, and then you put the muzzle flash in after or something like that. There are ways to do it now with technology that makes it much safer. But that that one... You know, I can't, I mean, that's just gross negligence. It's negligence. It's almost, it's, you know, the question is, is it such gross negligence that it's criminal? Nobody's claiming he did it on purpose. You don't have to do it on purpose. Criminally negligent homicide simply means that you were so negligent that it's a criminal. We, we, we allow people to have accidents. Accidents happen all the time. We don't put people in jail for having an accident. But if the accident is the result of such negligence, we as a society say, no, you can't go past this point. You can't be so negligent that the accident can almost be foreseen. And and so that's criminally negligent homicide. There's no intent needed. Um, it's, it's simply an accident, but it's an accident as a result of your gross negligence. Oh, man. Ugh. It's almost what should, some people should be charged with, with the Delta P stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. Let's get back into diving. We kind of that's why I said I transitioned. I transitioned. I transitioned. How are you going to delta P in the cocaine submarines? <laughs> oh well, that's that. Well, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't transition. I didn't know we were going. I forgot we were going oh. straight into the delicious well, submarine. Where, where were you going with the delta P? I was just saying all those things that we all those past deaths. Oh. No, I mean, I got there's you. people okay. who are supposed to lock. Yes, out, because that's out. another thing, right? Yeah, that's your. They they you you yeah. hammer delta P into no, people's you. heads. You yeah. hammer delta P. You hammered into their heads. Delta P. Delta, you see the videos. Mm-hmm. You see the, the the crab get sucked into the pipe. Right? Yeah, get the good old crab get get sucked into. The- <laughs> yeah, and you see the animation of the of the people who have died. Delta P. Right. You know, you see those videos and stuff. Look, accidents happen again. Right. But nobody should die of, in a Delta P accident because it's so right. pounded. Into there's your so head. many people. But there's so many. Yeah. But there's so many people who go through those checks or are supposed to, and right. one one f up. F's the whole thing up. Co- mm-hmm. Corners get cut. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just like Yayo, that gets cut really good. Yes. Now that's a transition. Gosh <laughs> <Okay>. damn it. <laughs> Woo. Wow. So I'm ready. We touched on cocaine submarines, but we really wanted to talk a little bit more about cocaine. About it. Oh. Right. About co- no, no. The submarines. Not cocaine. Put the powder away, John. Man. <laughs> Back in my day, I'll tell you what. We're, That's we're not talking legal to, yet. Uh, yeah, come on now. <laughs> yeah, he's still got friends in the force, I guess. Soon, soon you'll have <laughs> cocaine gummies. I think in California. Yeah, oh, probably. Um, <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not like Washington, where they're giving you clean needles and Narcan yeah, yeah. for free out of the back of a truck. <laughs> it's like ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah, it's. Anyways, sorry, but yeah, you uh, talked a little bit about cocaine submarines. Can we expand on that a little bit? Sure. So in, down in Colombia, what they do is they they have these processing, these co- cocaine processing plants in the jungle along these rivers, and they literally float like this submarine up. And actually, they build it in the jungle because they load the, the cocaine on and then they put the top on, it's fiberglass or whatever, and, and they, they, they seal it up and then they, they cut it open, you know, in Mexico. Oddly enough, a lot of times they, they get it to Mexico from Colombia with the sub, and then they truck it across the border from Mexico to U.S. Right. For those um, for those of you who are listening, it's this is not a real submarine. <laughs> this is a DIY submarine 
which yes, which yeah, I'm, it's a cool four. <laughs> it's actually we call them SPSs. So this it's a self-propelled semi-submersible is how we in the in our business in the biz. call it. It's not a submarine. <laughs> we don't refer to it as you know in the biz. We don't refer to it as a submarine. We it's a semi-submersible because it never really fully goes below the water. Right, right. There's this little su- superstructure that that sometimes it, all it is is a snorkel. But it never goes, and that's how they got the ones that we, so they come up along the Atlantic and the Pacific. On the Atlantic side, it's obviously a lot shallower. Um, So the two recoveries that I was involved in were on the Atlantic side. Um, And what happens is the Coast Guard has a task force um, with several other countries and several other agencies, DEA, FBI. And uh, the one that we were working with was out of Tampa. And they run C-130s up up and down the coast of Mexico and Central and South America. And they do at night. They do, you know, a heat signature stuff because that snorkel that's out is all the heat from the, the four the four people on board and a really old big diesel motor, diesel engine in there. So there's a lot of heat coming out out of that one little snorkel wow. right at night. And the rest of it's below, like a maybe a foot or two below the surface of the water, and the snorkel goes up maybe three or four feet. These on these occasions, the the C-130 saw the snorkel, they go do, they do a couple of passes, they circle lower and stuff, and then they dispatch a cutter out there. Now, these things are built with scuttling valves. (laughs) So they have scuttling valves. They have to literally, but they have to, before they can use them, they have to get on the satellite phone, call Columbia and get approval to scuttle the boat, basically sending all the cocaine to the bottom of the ocean. And then what they do is they get out, they put their life preservers on and they bob in the water until they know the Coast Guard's going to come and save them. And so on the, these occasions, this like a, the one occasion, so they're bobbing in the water and the Coast Guard, by the cu- time the cutter gets there and dispatches small boats from the cutter and they pick these four guys up, they kind of get the GPS coordinates and they know where they went down. And they, they leave a, a, a ship in on station. Uh, they call us because at that point, the Coast Guard didn't have an active recovery um, dive program. We've, we helped them set one up later, but they didn't have one then. They had Marsac, they had, they had, I can't, MSTs. Uh, so they had tactical dive, you know, if they were doing a boarding, ship boardings, things like that. So they, they had a dive capability, but it, it was, it was more tactical than salvage. They didn't have evidence recovery and salvage. They didn't have surface supply. We actually trained them a little bit on surface supply. We set them up with the Navy on some of that stuff too. And, and so at this point they needed, they wanted us to go down and get the, the, the cocaine. On the Pacific side, they do it all the time, but it lands in a thousand feet of water, two thousand feet of water uh, on the Pacific here on the Pacific side, right? Um, but on the Atlantic side, it's much shallower. So this was in ninety feet of water. So we went down to Pensacola, and um, we got on a buoy tender. Um, they wanted to set us up on one of their Homeland Security brand new cutters and fancy oh, things, fancy. really high end. Oh, but the thing is, the freeboard on that stuff is way too high right. for us. We can't dive off that. <laughs> so if you think about a, a buoy tender has that big scoop cut out on, on each side and it has the big crane that kind of takes the buoy onto the, they do what they have to do and they put the buoy back in the water. So it's great because it, it has low freeboard right there. Mm-hmm. And you could get in and out really easy. It's not the ideal ship to live on for a month, but nonetheless, it was more important for us to be able to work off of it. So we got there, we got to Pensacola, we got on the ship, on the buoy tender, um, it took us uh, about a week, I think, to get down there, maybe maybe less, a couple of days at least. Um, and I remember because the crew didn't wasn't told who we were. And so, <laughs> a bunch you know, of spooks in, on in board. Situa- 
yeah, so it's it was really uncomfortable because it's a very small ship, and 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 so we're getting our looks and stuff. And um, I remember uh, what was it? Uh, I don't know. So it was like two or three days before the crew was told who we were because the captain said, look, I got a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year old kids on this boat and they all have cell phones. And the minute they find out FBI is on board, they're going to be posting it to to social media and they're going to be telling their friends. And it's going to like, so Mm -hmm. I'd rather not have anybody kind of do that. So we had to clear the uh, tip of Florida and get far enough out where they didn't have coverage Mm -hmm. and internet, but it was a little, it was a little tense eating, you know, on the mess deck and stuff where, you know, these kids are like, who the fuck, are, you know, sorry, who, who are these people and stuff? And, and uh, you know, certain tables or we were allowed <laughs> to sit on some of the guys. You can't sit there. You're not a, a, you know, an officer or whatever. And it's like, man, I will kill. At the end, it was like, it was great. It was, they, they loved us and, and I'm still friends with some That's of the people that are on that, on that boat. Um, but so anyway, we get on station and the pro the main problem was, the because they didn't have an active dive program and they actually suspended they were starting one a couple years earlier and they had the Healy incident the, the Healy was a, a ship a coast guard ship that was i think in, up in the arctic circle or something and they had liberty and they only had they had two or three divers on on station on that ship and they were like oh we're here for a couple of days liberty we're, it was basically around the ice so they did an ice dive and they killed two divers yeah two coast guard divers and so they 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 basically suspended the program for a while. Yeah. And this was kind of during that time frame while they were still reevaluating their program. Um, so their procedures, though, their requirements were, if you're going to use DPS, if you're going to use a dynamic positioning system, you had to have two or three computers, three independent compute backup computers, right? And instead of anchoring. So if you're, so, so we tried to anchor and we couldn't anchor. It was in 90 feet of water, but we couldn't anchor with that ship. It was too heavy. And they had a big, huge concrete block as an anchor. They just used their crane. And oh, wow. Was, and, but we had divers in the water and the boat started drifting and started Uh-oh. dragging that big concrete. I have video of a diver literally running along the bottom and you see this big, no way. It's, it's almost like Indiana Jones with the, with the <laughs> boulder coming behind him. The diver's trying to run across the bottom and the umbilical's getting, you know, to, to taut. And this, it's the ship is dragging. So we're like, okay, time out. Let's reevaluate this. We have to use the dynamic positioning system. They have it on board, but they're like, we can't, you know, so yeah. they couldn't do it. So we actually had to wait a day and we had to type up this thing. And it was basically requesting a waiver in Washington from Coast Guard headquarters, a waiver of the, the, the dual, the backup computer system, you know, in case DPS fails. Because if DPS fails, mm-hmm. you have divers in the water, the, the, the ship's going to drift and your diver's going to get dragged across yeah. the bottom. Or you have a Chris um, Lemons you know, moment yeah, when the DPS a, fails. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. 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 And it did happen once while we were on DPS. Wow. And we were like, but the divers, wow. if, the divers were fine. I don't they, know they, if we they, can they, have that, but can I have that uh, video of that diver running? Yeah, I can I can try to find it and send it to you. Oh, sure man. What a joke. It's a like tr- the Men of Honor Carl Brashear moment that was totally faked running away from the submarine. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. He's like, I'll try to yeah. outrun a Russian submarine. Yeah. Wait, that was fake? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it was real. You actually, what happened was, too, that block hit the sub and actually turn the sub onto another side and you see like the drag marks over the course of the- Wow. <laughs> so anyway, so f- we finally get down on there. We're using surface applied air and hard hats first because we're using tools because we have to cut big holes in, in the, in the top uh, of this vessel to, to access the cocaine because in, in the, in the, in the pilot house, I mean, 
it's just living conditions are horrific. I mean, I couldn't imagine being four guys in this tiny little thing with diesel fumes. And yeah, I mean, they had like bushels of oranges and cases of Gatorade. That's oh, all they were living nice. on. For, Typical. Know, how many, how many That's days all you they need. Have you, <laughs> yeah. you seen how they get across the border? I mean, okay. yeah, that's luxury right was, there. I mean, it was Careful. it was already underwater at ninety Careful. feet down. I could I could just looking at it. You know, when I was in there, you could I could practically smell it. It just oh, wow. was bad. Oh um, God! And and but but forward of the pilot house is is a kind of one little hatch. You open that, and it's a wall of cocaine, like wall of 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 cocaine bundles. So so they were there was some loose, but mainly mainly ten, twenty, and thirty kilo kind of bundles. And then wherever they had like a little space, they would just shove a, a loose kilo in there. So we cut the top off, and that's with our tools, you know, big circular saw. We're just kind of cutting the top off. We've got a we got a decent size hole now, hatch in there, and then we just started taking out. So we did we did two divers at a time, and what we did was we had a downline, and we staged a bunch of duffel bags and a bunch of uh, different things with some lift bags on there at the bottom on the outside of of the vessel, and then as we took more and more off there was basically a hole forming in this vessel. I think it was 52 feet long. Wow, and, that's um, a big summary. so like, I think one of the videos wow. I sent you, so I get in, I get into the vessel and my partner's on the outside of the vessel standing there and he's got a, 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 a sea bag or a duffel bag, whatever it was, a couple of them. And what I would do is I would just push these bundles to him and then he would take them and push them in there. And when they got, one got full, he would carabiner it to a lift bag onto the upline and just send it up. And then we had surface swimmers swimming from the buoy because the the, the the vessel was off a little bit because we didn't want it to come right under the vessel. So so the surface swimmers would swim over to the buoy, take the carabiner off and swim the, the, the duffel bag over to the ship and they would haul it up on, on a haul line up to the, the ship. And we would do that. And there was some little uh, competition developed, like, you know, which which pair of divers could get the most kilos today. You know? so, you, <laughs> so you're in there. And, stuff and, and so and so you'll see on the video, like typical my, divers. I think it's yeah. yeah. How it's, my partner's, <laughs> it's my partner's um, his helmet cam, I think. And at that point, we went back to uh, to full face masks. We weren't in hard hats, I don't think. Because yeah. it's just easy to move around. Mm-hmm. You're a little mobile. And that's, you know, so I'm in the vessel and I'm taking now I've got a bunch of loose kilos and I'm basically frisbeeing them <laughs> to him through the water and you yeah. see them coming at him and he's reaching out and grabbing one, shoving it in. And I'm like, just not waiting for him. I'm just, they're in the, they're in the air on the way to him. There's another kilo of cocaine coming at him <laughs> and he's just grabbing it, putting it in, grabbing it, putting him in. And then when that, you know, when he's full, then he, then he kind of gives me the hold for a second while he carabiners it pops the lift bag and it goes to the surface. And then he, then he was like, okay, come next. And then I would just start doing that with him. And then he would shove him in. And as he turned, the next one was right there waiting for him. It's coming. It's drifting at him. You know, I will say occasionally, I think I had a, you know, one got away. I'm pretty sure I had a dream like that one time where I was like, Oh my God, look at all this Coke. And it's flying at me. There might've been, there might've been one or two, that got away. Oh yeah, because yeah. I remember sure, sure. after one certain dive, we're, we're down there doing our hang at 15 feet, you know, below, and then we could see the bottom of the vessel. We're doing our hang, and like the vessel has these ribs, kind of like uh, ridges on the bottom. Mm-hmm. You could see one or two, 
kilos kind of stuck to the bottom of the vessel. <laughs> I know once they started the engine, we got underway. All that stuff just got yeah. just in that, you know, tons of fish. Just um, but that's a that's you know, a Florida grouper, been, yeah. right? <laughs> the Colombian grouper, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Colombian grouper. Yeah. 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 So the last day, it might have been one of the last days. We were doing our hang, my, my partner and I, and we're on comms. You know, we're full. Mm-hmm. We've got comms to the surface, and and I say to it was Doug, it was his name. I said, "Hey, Doug, look below you, and there's a shark, about a twelve footer, kind of going, you know, circling the sub down below. And you know, it's at ninety feet. We're up at fifteen, and it's kind of like I'm going, I'm going. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> fine. It's not. And then all of a sudden, it starts coming up at us and stuff, and. And it, 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 I say that I'm trying to calm Doug down. Doug, Doug, don't worry about it. It's 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 it, it, we're not food. It's not looking for food. You know, probably. Yeah, no, it's not um, looking for food at all. Yeah. It's like it's yeah, it's says, cocaine. Says, you guys got some nose. It's, it's got a nose full of yeah, cocaine. Yeah. You better believe it's looking yeah. for food. It's, like, it's we're, we're Taco Bell sitting here like you know, like, it's like that this, movie. Cocaine got a snout. Yeah, cocaine. Yeah. This is cocaine shark. Cocaine, cocaine shark. There you go. Yeah. Okay, we we better register that. <laughs> register after <this> it up. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got the video of the shark and some stills of the shark. I'll send. I would love that. Uh, I got the video where it comes right up to his fin and it kind of like nibbles on his fin and leaves oh, it alone. Funny. And that's funny. And then off of it goes. Yeah. But, but yeah, so it took us I think eight or nine days <laughs> to offload all the kilos, and I think it was like six hundred fifty million dollars worth of cocaine. Oh, wow. On that, on that Man. particular vessel, and then at the end, you know. So, we, first thing you do is, like any crime scene, you do a whole video and photographic thing before you touch it and before you do anything. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing you do is also you go through. And I remember going through when it was empty and um, and and videotaping it and stuff. And then then we cut it apart. We didn't want them, you know, recovering it at all and stuff. So we we cut the screw. We actually took the. The, the prop back with us as a souvenir and we nice. cut the rest of it up and stuff. And we, we did get like this satellite phone and a couple of other phones. I, I don't know if they could do anything with them because they were underwater. I think some IDs we got, I think maybe some Colombian IDs. We got some, some decent okay. stuff beside the cocaine and stuff. But I heard later, and I don't know if this is true, but I heard later that like the captain of that vessel, not captain, you loosely <laughs> use that term, but the guy who was like basically in charge of the, yeah. the three other people and driving it, they got permission from Columbia. But by the time they were transported to Tampa and in jail in Tampa, his mother in Columbia had already been murdered. Oh, um, that's basically as a as a warning, you know, don't talk to the feds, basically, because you got plenty of other family members down here that are still yeah. alive, um, but but mom's gone, um, and, and that's just the brutality who of the hotels. That's the way they are. That was interesting. It was really nice because it was, it was, um, you know, we weren't dealing with with victims or human remains, but the the diving was like Caribbean diving. It was mm-hmm. 150 miles off the coast of Honduras is where we were. We were 150 miles off the coast of Honduras. It was crystal clear water. It was warm. It was just. It, it was really good diving. It was actually the probably the most fun dive I've had. I mean, in, in my career because it was, how can it? It was just fun. How can it not be? You have it was just fun. beautiful, yeah, yeah. beautiful viz. Some cocaine. You're diving. <laughs> sharks coming in. Sure, everything's cocaine up. shark. Of course, it's the best. The captain of the the. I will say this: the captain of the Coast Guard vessel was adamant about no loose. Cocaine, like in, in other words, if one of, they were all really wrapped tight mm-hmm. with a lot of duct tape and stuff, but if anything was like leaking out, it wasn't coming on the on the ship. Oh, so you he just didn't want any it. loose cocaine on the ship because because all the yeah, he just didn't want that responsibility. 18, 19 so, year old kids up there. There's, so yeah. if it was like it, we would shake it, and if it had a little, if it had a little coming out, we would just take our dive knife and just rip it open and just let it go in the water and just let it, you know. 
Ugh. Couldn't you just Hopefully, done that in the first full place? Full face mask done out perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> we, some, hoping yeah. we weren't absorbing any of that stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, but I mean, there. the deck of that, I have pictures of like the deck of that ship getting the mountain of cocaine getting higher each day, higher and higher and higher each day. Um, and then we steamed back to Tampa and I think DEA offloaded it to their, to their, uh, to their vault or wherever it was. But I mean, it was, a, it was truckloads of it. it wow. Was, it was enormous. Yeah. It's a 50 you know, something foot had, sub. You know, that is crazy. Yeah. yeah, it was a 52 foot. Th- we stopped at Guantanamo Bay on the way back for resupply. Oh, I love getting And then we, then we, yeah, then we made it to Tampa. But like before we got even to the coast of Florida, they had some escort vessels with, with big guns around because they knew the cartel knew that we had the, because they were watching. We knew they were watching us when we were doing huh. the recovery. The cartel had boats kind of circling and stuff and wow. pleasure boats, you know, 150 miles out with no, with no fishing. <laughs> yeah, pleasure on, boats and no fishing. <laughs> so, so like they would want their cocaine back and we're on a buoy tender. So we don't have a lot of protection. Right. You know, it's not okay. like we have That's, 50 yeah. cows mounted on the deck, you know? So, so they had some escort uh, vessels kind of meet us and kind of. Okay. Yeah. So I was about to, I was about to say in. like, how did that make you guys feel like, man, I don't have, Dude, yeah. I don't have nothing. The uh, narcos yeah. have dive teams too, I guess. Right. What? Oh yeah, narco dive yeah, teams. Yeah. Well, we, yeah, we we did have dive? one. Yeah, narco divers. We had one, um, one really long old wooden boat with like a small outboard with two guys in it, with di- with with a couple of regulators and and an eighty aluminum eighties, and we kind of like they they had a small boat go and and round them up and we brought them to the boat and we're like, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're lobster diving. I mean, you're 150 miles out. Lobster <laughs> yeah. Diving. I mean, come on. You know, so they were probably sent out there. Oh, to for sure. To find it. And then they got out there and then we were there and we kind of surprised them, I think. So, I mean, we identified them, took photographs and stuff and fingerprints, but we let them go. I mean, there's nothing, to, nothing we can do. No, we know but about this. Johnny. That we found a boat out there with dive gear. We know about this. We had a guest on our show that did, uh, back in the early days in the seventies, that oh, did that's some right. marijuana diving and stuff yeah that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm not going to mention you guys have to go back and try to decipher right who we're talking about yeah. in the archives yeah. of the early force you to episodes to of the shows. bottom dwellers yeah yeah how many how many episodes have you guys done oh man we are almost up to a hundred so it's oh, not wow. a ton compared to other podcasts but for a niche podcast like us yeah it's, right. good, it's professional. a professional no, that's really good yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah it's a good deal <laughs> Coming yeah. up on a hundred really yeah. soon here, really, really soon. Oh man, like we got a few have episodes left. Party or something. Yeah, we gotta have a party. A giveaway. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But man, thank you for sharing the story about the cocaine the submarines. Love it. Yeah, yeah. And we are gonna pause real quick for a quick for commercial a quick shot. break. We're pause. Real I mean, quick for a quick break. Shot. Yeah, shots or whatever. Get your stuff out. We'll be right back. RentalToolsOnline.com. RTO, they've got you covered with rental tools that can handle the most demanding marine construction jobs and available to ship anywhere in the globe. But don't let the name fool you. They also have new tools and equipment for sale at some of the best prices around with amazing customer service. RTO has a Trustpilot score of 4.9 out of 5 with almost 200 reviews. They're real customers, non-paid, real thoughts. Divex Marine was impressed by the great inventory. Bill Eubanks at Harbor Diving Service praised the customer support and fast shipping. And John Shaw at Advanced Marine Services says, for a small contractor who needs to rent, RTO is the perfect solution. Quick and painless. 
Rental Tools Online carries all the major brands like Stanley, Nemo, JW Fishers, and even Pressure Junkies, to name a few. RTO has their own house brand that meets or exceeds industry standards. It's called Joint Zone. Not the place you used to smoke doobies by the bleachers, but an affordable hydraulic tool and lift bag alternative. Their Joint Zone lift bags are manufactured with a higher puncture resistance and load capacity than many other lift bags on the market. With advanced designs and materials, including optional cold weather coating, you don't have to worry about the next salvage job. So for the most convenient way to rent or purchase tools, go to rentaltoolsonline.com. That's rentaltoolsonline.com. Back to the show. And we're back. And we're back. And we're back. Wow. Cocaine. So, cocaine. Yes. Johnny, over. get off yeah, of okay, the cocaine. We're off the cocaine. Get off of the cocaine I'm shark. Cocaine shark is dead. I am well, off the cocaine. We still have to talk about getting the rights to cocaine shark. There's yeah. cocaine bear. Cocaine shark might be another. It only one. makes sense. I mean, have. come on. Yeah. Sharknado yeah. was a huge. Yeah. They made yeah. like three yeah. of them. So many. We can do cocaine shark one through five. At least. Imagine Megalodon. Meg- oh, yeah. They the have Meg- the Meg. That was actually really good. I no, like that none of those are good. I Meg on it. Coke. <laughs> the Coke bag. Yeah, the Coke bag. <laughs> but then it's going to be some carrot on Coke. <laughs> I want to speak to your manager. No. Oh, man. <laughs> you laugh, but, you know, we've we've all seen franchise movies get more ridiculous. Oh, yeah. And they still make them. They yeah, still they do. do. Fast and Furious 11 or Fast and Furious 15, whatever. Oh, my God. I hate <laughs> everything about those movies. Well, it's so easy to And yet, movies. how many of them have they made? Yeah. I know. I've seen one, right? The, the, the main star died and they still make them. Yeah. yeah. I've seen one. Everyone has. In a car accident. <laughs> going too fast. Right. Crazy. <laughs> I mean, that should have been a sign to stop making these things. <sighs> yeah. Oh, Bobby, you're going to get in trouble. Here. He's going too fast and he's too free. <laughs> you're not going to get cast in Fast and the Furious. That's, that's okay. You don't want to do gonna that. You're going to have Fast and Furious 20 pretty soon. Here. Fast and Furious 12 underwater. <laughs> underwater <laughs> submarines. <laughs> Try to get the yay to Florida. If oh. you guys, if people watch that, I, I would like to publicly say you guys are all stupid. I can't say that. That's no, half of our listening I audience that I are care. in the car. I don't want. I don't want those listeners. That's terrible. Well, Johnny, I hate those people. I hate those movies. Are oh, you killing me? <laughs> but we digress. Yeah. We've got to get back and do Moving the diving on. show. We're doing a diving podcast, kind not of. a it's... pop podcast here. Yeah. So I'm having more fun talking about the non diving stuff, yeah. to tell you the truth. Alex Baldwin, the <laughs> yeah. whole. It makes me feel I'm at, I'm at work when I'm talking about diving. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry, man, that you feel yeah. that way about yeah. this show. I mean, it's just, right. it's funny. I moved to the desert, right? Spending 19 years working underwater. But, but you know, when, and people say, oh, do you dive a lot? And I, I, I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So I, I say like when I, now when I go to put diving gear on and stuff, I feel like I'm, I'm at work. Yeah. Like, yeah. See, work. That's thank why you. we don't do it. That's see, why commercial Stacey, divers don't do it. Stacy, if you're listening to right. this, when right. you want to go to Hawaii and go do your scuba, I'm, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> I would rather go to the desert right. or the mountains. I don't want to see yeah. the ocean. I spend enough time underwater. Yeah. The only reason why commercial divers do scuba diving and stuff is to impress girls and meet girls. Exactly. That's my theory and on that. For the yayo. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> All right, yeah. sir, stop with the cocaine. We can't keep up. Killing me. But uh, we promised our listeners, and I'm a big nerd because I work in the engineering field. And we want to talk about the I-35. The I-35 is like a huge case study in the engineering, especially the bridge inspection business, which I am a part of, Johnny. Mm-hmm. 
now again. I know. So I knew I thirty five. You guys got called in with a lot of other teams. The Navy was there as well. Some of the same members that were on the Flight eight hundred crash were on the I thirty five. Can you tell us a yeah. little bit about the I thirty five bridge collapse? Yeah. So we were called in. Funny thing is, we were called in and um, we got there, and there was a kind of a representative of the Navy of a Navy Reserve unit, dive unit. I think they were from Cleveland or somewhere in Ohio. I think. Um, and he wasn't, wasn't the friendliest of guys towards us. He didn't want us there. And, um, but he didn't know anything about our program. He didn't know we were aligned with the Navy, okay. with Soup Salve and, and things like that. You know, he ha- we had one meeting, I remember initially, and he, w- he just tried to shoot us down. He's like, you know, well, you guys can't be in the water because you don't do uh, surface applied. Goes, of course we do surface applied. He <laughs> nice. goes, well, okay, well, you can't be in the water because you don't do hard hat diving. I mean, we are. Of course, we do hard hat diving. You know, you, the Navy trained us to do hard. And so he, he tried to throw up as many. Uh, he was a Navy commander, and he he tried to throw up as many blockades for us. And actually, he he was fi- kind of successful. But we we deferred when the Navy kind of brought their their dive unit mm-hmm. in. And actually, the, di- the the master diver was somebody we knew from our days at the schoolhouse in Panama. City. Nice. And he was really friendly and stuff. Um, but there wasn't there wasn't enough room to do, to do too many divers in there. And it was, it was, it was somewhat dangerous because to, to get too many divers in the water at once. So what, mm-hmm. what we did was we kind of stepped back and we, we were their safeties and they didn't need us as safety certainly, but we were there just in case they needed us. And then what we did was we ran, we ran all the sonar stuff. So we, we, we did a bunch of tripod sonar uh, surveys underwater. And at that point it was kind of, in the infancy, the mosaicing, you know, mosaicing of yeah. sonar images over each other and stuff. And I had two guys, two agents on my team that were really good at that stuff. One used to be a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. So he was nice. really good at the mosaicing stuff. But it wasn't like now. Now they have the software that they do they use now to mosaic was is really sophisticated. Back then it was not. Um, but we were able to kind of patter, patch things together and really get a good picture of what was underwater. When the bridge collapsed... There was so much, and I sent you guys some pictures. Yes, and, and we're going to share those. those. Pictures are above the water, but mm-hmm. that mirror is exactly what was below the water. So it was just a, this mass of steel and concrete and vehicles. What it did was it blocked the water flow of that river, and where water could get through was was getting through at a high rate. Delta so you had, P. You had like oh suction. boy, the old Delta P you know? strikes again. <laughs> Yeah, so it was really that's why it was dangerous because we had to figure out where where the water was coming through, and because the divers could get mm-hmm. you know really sucked in there. And then as we were removing, say, vehicles with the cranes that we had, because the, the good thing was the Army Corps of Engineers had a depot like a hundred yards up the river, they, they and they had a lot of equipment and stuff. So, but as you moved vehicles around, it changed the water patterns and where the water was flowing yep. and stuff, wow. you know, and, and stuff. So, so it was really tricky diving and the Navy guys were doing really good, good work <laughs> and stuff. And I think there were only, I don't know how many bodies were in the water, but we, they got them all back, but there weren't, it wasn't like TWA, it yeah. wasn't 200 bodies, but what happened, and I think what saved them was, so the collapse happened, I think at like rush hour, right? So, but what happened was the bridge was under construction. It was under renovation. So they had at least one lane Oh, maybe two lanes actually um, shut down. But where the lanes were shut down, it was either dug up because they were replacing girders, or they were you know doing whatever they were doing to kind of renovate the bridge. But they left all this heavy construction equipment yeah. up there. So 
because they wanted to keep it, you know, somewhere where it was readily available, but out of the way of everybody. So when they closed for the night, they just parked all of this heavy, heavy equipment on the bridge. They overloaded closed lanes. They overloaded the bridge during construction. They were doing some more overlay, concrete overlay on the bridge deck. They left all the right. materials and all the equipment over defects that were uh, fracture critical defects. We don't call them fracture critical anymore. They're non-redundant. So that weight messed up a gusset plate, caused it to fail, and then it just started this whole chain of events. Yeah, I mean, you know, like yeah. you just need that one failure and everything else goes. On this specific bridge, yep. It was a fracture critical bridge yeah. and one one thing goes on it and everything goes. Wow. We can do a whole yeah. episode Gross on negligence. the I-35, right, what happened right. there as far as like the bridge inspection is concerned. But we're right. not going to do that to you listeners. We're talking about the uh, recovery and all the wreckage and all that stuff. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because, and then this is why, because, you know, we we were brought in, because in the beginning, you don't know. Just this devastation thing yeah. happens, like TWA. We didn't know until months later it wasn't terrorism. So, you know, we're, we got, we're brought in because you only get to do a crime scene right the first time or else you lose everything, right? So you, you go on the assumption that is terrorism, and if it isn't, then that's okay. fine. And then you, you take just, a step back. You, know, you may have... You may have taken a little too much time or too longer than it would have, but at least you preserve something if eventually you needed it. But but in this case, we were there to help the Navy just recover the victims. Once all we knew all the victims were recovered, and, and, and that was easy enough to do with the cars and the people that are missing and stuff, then it was kind of like almost an insurance job. Then DOT came in, mm-hmm. the state DOT came in, and, and, NTSB. and then it became almost insurance companies got involved and the construction company, you know, then it was like yeah. this legal, then the Navy and us got out of there. So we were only there basically for victim recovery. Once that was done, then they brought in new commercial diving outfits to do the rest of that, you know, the, the rest of that stuff. But but we had to remove a certain amount of vehicles underwater. There had to be a certain amount of cutting. The Navy had a plasma cutter uh, that they were using to, to cut into some things to get to the victims. And once we got, you know, um, I, I remember like, for example, there was one, one person in one car, one vehicle that um, worked in the federal courthouse, and they had a briefcase that had like wiretap affidavits, things that were under seal that we can't really let out and mm-hmm. stuff. And so they, you know, at one point we said, if you see this particular car, you're not going to see the license plate. It has a government license plate, yeah. but you're not going to probably see that. But it's a it's a four door, you know, standard government K car, or whatever, because the person works at the court. They're not like they don't have a covert car. So you know, look for that vehicle if you see it we need to get the the briefcase that's in there, which that's the only other thing other than the victims. That was kind of what we were looking for. And and once all the victims were accounted for, then it was like, okay, let's back out and let's let everybody else handle it. They're going to bring in a commercial salvage company or whatever they do and, and, yeah. and engineering. They, I know that they did ask for all of our sonar surveys, get with the Navy each day to show them what we've kind of come up with. And, you know, each time we removed, each time they, we had something removed, they would, they would, what am I saying? Rig it up. They would put the straps around it. They, rig they it. would rig it. Rig they it would up. Rig it. I don't rig it. Rig. They would rig it. Rig it up. You got to rig <laughs> it up. <laughs> they would rig it. And then the, the crane would bring it up and then we would resurvey. We would re-sonar it again just to, to make – because once you remove a vehicle, other stuff could move around on you a little bit. Yeah. So we're trying to give the divers as accurate a photo, a, a picture of what was down there uh, before they got in the water because, you know, that's – the more intelligence they can have into what they're going into, the better and the safer. Well, so, yeah. So we would, you know – that point, you're playing pickup sticks. 
You know, you, yeah, you take exactly. one stick and everything, and everything fall down. Moves. Yeah. So I yeah. was wondering if they had, Good I mean, point. they had to have had engineers there too, watching. Did oh, you, absolutely. And the Corps of Engineers was okay, right so the there. Army Corps was there. Yeah. Okay. The Army Corps, their depot was like 100 feet, 100 yards or whatever up the river. It was literally along the river right there. It was on the river. It actually but oh, nice. The but they were there on site um, though, because when you're doing salvage they, like that, you have to know. Like, kind of like what pieces yeah. are going to fall, where yeah. where to pick from, and what to rig, and how to rig it. Well, they, I you think it was an Army Corps engineer barge. Okay, they just floated a barge down, and the Navy set up on the barge, and then we we would have our sonar boat come over to the barge, and the Corps of Engineers, we had a Corps of Engineer guy on our sonar boat, and then when we would get back to the barge, there, there was a like a you know a little shelter there, and then they would go over all the sonar data on the barge with the Corps of Engineers and with the divers, because yeah, it was, it was a constant changing that it changed every day. In fact, it could have changed every couple of hours The what you're dealing with there. And then the water, you remove one car and then the water starts flowing differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where the danger was over here, now the danger could be somewhere else. The danger being that, that flow of water. Yeah. Um, and then you also don't that. know how it's going to affect the structure that's still down there too, with that flow of water right. as well. So that's man, right. that must have and been. That's a, why soon yeah, as we, tough. soon as they, soon as we were done with the, with the body okay. recovery, that's why we let yeah. then we we let the heavy hitters come in, the guys that are kind of doing that stuff all the time, and um and and, and that's who belongs down there at that point. Yeah, man. That, like I said, that's a very fascinating bridge collapse. It's one of our worst bridge collapses in in uh, our nation's history. You know, along with the uh, Silver Bridge too. There, there's and the Bay right. Bridge. That's one of those high-profile bridge collapses, and right, right, right. yeah. I, t- I tell you, have what. you ever seen the movie "The, the Mothman Prophecies"? Yes, with Richard Gere. Love that that, movie, that, yeah. There's a pretty gnarly bridge collapse scene into the water in that movie. Yeah, us bridge inspectors, we we have to stay yeah. up to date with all those bridge collapses and everything yeah. because I don't yeah. want to get called into the court for missing something. Right, and right. a lot of right. those guys did get called into the court. For missing oh, a lot. Yeah, that's all missing a stuff. lot. I mean, stuff. if you go into, I mean, when I was in commercial dive school, you could go into med tech, well tech, or NDT, right? And you knew the guys that went into NDT were going to be wind up doing that kind of work and we're going to yep. wind up in court at times. Med tech, maybe, but NDT guys. And I was a well tech guy. I just did welding. That's what that, that was my thing. Because um, I wanted to cut, because that's the fun stuff. Cutting stuff up underwater is just fun. Speaking of underwater cutting, is that the stuff that you did at the coup? Oh boy. College of Oceaneering. College of Oceaneering? Yeah. Yes, that's what I did. I worked on that project. I mean, you know, the project that's out there in the water. I loved underwater cutting. And then I did it again in Fort Eustis with the Army because we did we did a bunch of underwater uh, welding and, and cutting training with the Army at Fort Eustis with their divers. So, how was it like going um, through yeah. dive school, though? Did everybody, oh, dive, I love dive Did school. everybody know I mean, you were a fed and they were like, oh, who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, but you know what? <laughs> Remember, I went through. I was uh, hide the cocaine. I was probably <laughs> I was probably forty five years old when I went through high school. Right, I was so you spent at least like a twice as. Are you a narc? I was at least yes, as, I am. twice as old. I was at least twice as old as the next youngest uh, student in my class, um, and I was surprised. I was surprised that like because I was already a dive master. I was a DMT. I went to DMT school with Dick Rodkowski in, 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 in Key Largo, and he was a legend in DMTs. I was shocked. There were a couple of kids in that class that were really good welders, really topside welders. Like, that's what they, that, they were mm-hmm. welders. That's what they did. Yeah. But they never dove before. 
So we're going through basic diving physiology and physics. We're going through Boyle's law, Dalton's law. We're going through basic stuff. And I'm there like, are you kidding? Like, like you don't know this stuff and you're going to be, but that's what dive school is about, right? They yeah. take people that never know before. I had a lot of that already. Mm -hmm. So for me, I wanted to get right in the water. I wanted to get to where we were going to be cutting and welding and doing a lot of stuff. Um, but I did help a lot of those guys, you know, with that stuff because, you know, I had already been through that. Yeah. That stuff was old hat for me. Um, but dive tables and stuff, these guys were, they weren't divers. They weren't even scuba divers, some of them. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so in the beginning it was, um, it was really learning to crawl before you were walking. Um, but I loved it. I loved it. I still friendly with the guys. Two of the guys were really good friends. They went to the Gulf of Mexico one of them's back now. He's doing something else. Uh, one of them lives out here. I don't think he's diving anymore, but he lives out here in, uh, near Riverside somewhere. You know, and I lived in Long Beach and I'm going. Oh, to what a also. great it's time. A, it's a five minute commute. Yeah. It, it was really it was really great. And I loved welding. You know, I loved that stuff. And Lamar was a was a great instructor to have. I mean, he all the instructors there were really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. In fact, I I came this close. So they they brought in at the end of my school they they brought in a barge a big where it was going to be a new classroom i don't know that yeah that's where like that the classroom. yeah that's where that's yeah. where we had our classroom I came settings this close in i actually had the fbi approve us purchasing that for us because oh, national man. Was closing down the wilmington campus moving everything down to san diego and i had i had the fbi approval to buy that thing oh. they were going to buy it for us and then and we were just going to move that thing Oh, FBI was going to own it. We were going to dock it right outside. Yeah, that their, that would have been that would have been great. That's a, that was a uh, it was, that was awesome. great. That was my new office. We had the little dive. Yeah, tank they had in there. tank. We, yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was it was, it was, awesome. it was fantastic. Yeah, right when right, um, and then somebody yeah right somebody screwed me back at heavy headquarters. Oh, so, right when we graduated, we me Lamar and a few other divers, we practically I just had to clean that place out, and I was like, oh, this sucks. Like yeah. national yeah, really yeah. f this. Place. We're shutting down the Wilmington yeah, campus, right? Yeah. That was sad. It was sad. That was the end of the legacy. Yeah. I mean, before uh, the coup was what the Sparling School of Diving, I think, and yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah, something like that. It, it 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 passed hands a couple times, but like that's where you went to be a great commercial yeah. diver. Yeah, yeah. It was, at, it was at one point I mean, that was the school to go to. Yeah. And now yeah, and nothing. I started out. It's a park for homeless. They didn't have that yeah. thing. I mean, I started out in the old schoolhouse, which was like this oh, yeah. old rickety building. I love that building. I mean, it was. It should have been condemned. Right. <laughs> it, had, it had a little like diving bell out front or something. Yeah. An old antique diving bell out front. Yeah, we tried to get that. Um, Lamar tried to get that diving bell, and and uh, someone took it. It's like stolen. It's a great. It, it's yeah. a great nostalgic oh, wow. piece. I mean. It, it's a great. It's it, it's an antique. It, it's it's it, it should be restored in a museum somewhere. The last it, time it, we right. heard where it was, it was in um, it was somewhere in the desert, in a antique shop, or at least oh really somebody at, stole it. And yeah, took it to and the then desert. then and then we tracked it somewhere where it was cut up in the desert. Ah, oh, it, it was oh. yeah. It was it sucks. It was in in between Acton and uh, Palmdale. You know those little roadside oh, okay. places that they have yeah, over there. Yeah. That sucks. Where a diving bell should end. Yeah, up. Yes. exactly. <laughs> in some, in some tweakers backyard. In right? Some tweakers backyard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cut up for scrap. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. At least they're not in there trying to use it as an old Winnebago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was. Oh yeah, good times, huh? Yeah, it was good times. I yeah. enjoyed. I enjoyed. Nice. I enjoyed my time. I loved. Yeah, I loved the school, and I like. I said, I'm still friendly with everybody in our class that made it through. Um, we had a small class. I mean, we only had, I think, six or seven people in our class. 
Oh yeah, oh, see, that's a that's way so different than mine. We had yeah, ten we, or fifteen. We yeah. yeah, the only one I really talk to now, and I still don't really talk to him. I should talk to him more. Is is John Blunt? Yeah, John Blunt was in your class. Yeah, it's too funny. So John, shout out John Blunt. Woo. Blunt, woo, woo. probably the best diver I know. Yeah, he's really good. We wanted to talk a little bit. See, I don't know how to transition into this topic. Which topic is this? The the last thing that we had touched on uh, last episode, we touched on a little bit about uh, you were there in New York during 9-11. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. there, there's no segue yeah. here. Sorry, audience. They're used to my yeah. segues and everything. I'll, 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 I'll tell you the segue was this. So uh, up in August of 2001, we got a job to help the Michigan State Police recover a murder weapon. Um, I traveled to Traverse City, Michigan in August, which was our, that was our protocol. I would do a site survey. I went up there. I met with the detectives on the, on the thing. I met with their dive team and I looked at the water and stuff. And then I came back and did a report and then basically outlined the equipment we need, the manpower we need and how long it would take. And so I do that report. And then, then we go back like a week, so months later, a month later, um, we go back and do the job. So that was August. So September of 2001, September 11th of 2001, um, me and three other FBI agent divers are at Newark Airport getting on a flight to go to Traverse City, Michigan through Chicago, connecting through Chicago. So we're Newark, Chicago, Traverse City, Michigan. And the other half of the team is coming on a later flight later in the day. So we're lifting off out of Newark on that very clear, bright, sunny Tuesday morning. And I'm in a window seat. I'm looking out my window seat as we're lifting off, and I, I see something hit the North Tower. From oh, window. you actually see it? Um, no, you saw it. Holy I saw shit. It. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And we were flight 91, which we were the sister flight to 1993. 93 crashed in Pennsylvania. So we we went through the same security checkpoint as the hijackers that morning. We were wow. probably sitting 50 feet from them. They were at an adjacent gate. They were a 757. We were a 757. They were Newark to San Francisco because, remember, all the flights they chose were transcontinental flights. They wanted the most gasoline on those planes. Um, We were Newark to Chicago. So if you think about the Chicago route and the San Francisco route, they're pretty much the same route until we veer off to Chicago and then they continue on to San Francisco. So the pilots on our flight were with those pilots on 93 that morning in the United Lounge, the pilot's lounge, going over their route and going over their weather and and things like that and talking to each other and stuff. And so, you know, it was someday. And so we didn't go to Chicago. They did, wouldn't let us near Chicago. You know, they they thought Chicago to Sears Tower might have been a target. At, you know, early on, everything is, you know, crazy. And so we landed in Detroit and we got a, a, a vehicle. Luckily, uh, Attorney General Ashcroft was supposed to be in Detroit that day and his security detail was advanced there. And so they were there waiting. And so he never, he never left D.C. So like we're, we're taking one of our vans back to D.C. Do you want the other one? So we say, hey, bring it over to the airport. We, we need to get back to New York. There are four agents assigned to the New York office. I'm thinking I've got a bunch of colleagues dead because the towers have now collapsed and stuff. And I, you know, I remember not believing the towers collapsed until I saw it in the, in the Detroit airport. I saw it on the big screen TV and, and stuff. Um, before that, I just thought people didn't know what they were talking about. They were just not New Yorkers and they didn't, because in my mind, those towers could not fall. There's mm-hmm. no way. And then then we had a long drive, the four of us, and, and I think three of the four of us were native New Yorkers. And we had a long drive back to, to Newark Airport. We could get our government cars and get into Manhattan, got into Manhattan late that night in the middle of the night. Of course, everybody's still there. The lights are there. You know, we're so um, I'm down at ground zero that, that night and then spent the next 
months and months and months uh, working at Ground Zero up at the morgue a little bit, down at, out at Fresh Kills Landfill, where they were uh, bringing a lot of the debris, all the debris. Yeah. yeah so fast forward to the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I, I got an idea, and I, I got Audible to kind of sign off on it and help finance it and produce it and stuff. And um, so I, I we conceived the project called After the Fall, and it's basically the FBI's investigation into the 9-11 attacks. And... I wanted my colleagues to tell the story in their own voices. So if you listen to this on Audible, you hear directly from the people that did the work, both the crime scenes. You, you'll hear people that were at the Pentagon. You hear from people that were in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. You'll, you'll hear people that were in the morgue in New York City at Ground Zero. And you'll hear from people that were in Pakistan, agents that were in Pakistan at the time, agents that were in Yemen at the time. Because if you really want to know the story of 9-11, it has to start years earlier in the East African embassy bombings mm-hmm. and in the USS Cole bombing, the coal, yeah. we had mm-hmm. FBI divers at the coal and, and stuff. And I probably didn't even mention that, but yeah. So I sent two divers to the coal because we were actually looking for a little boy in, in North Carolina at the bottom of a lake, but when the coal happened. Um, so we were deployed, but I had a couple of eight, eight agent divers in New York that were available. Anyway, so so yeah, so you're, some of these guys well, and women um, had never told their story before couldn't because they weren't retired yet. Now they're all retired. Mm-hmm. And like one, Steve Baumgarten, he was he ended up being a profile later, but he was he was on the terrorism squad and he was chasing Al Qaeda and, and bin Laden. And um he testified at the 9-11 commission, but he testified in front of a screen through a voice modulator and in the 9-11 report he he's they use a pseudonym for him. Mm. But now he's retired and he comes out and he tells the story for the first time. Oh, wow. And he's the guy that basically asked the CIA five times in the 18 months leading up to 9-11 about these particular two names. And the CIA told five times that they knew nothing about them. And now then we found out the CIA knew they were living in San Diego and taking flight lessons. And they were two of the hijackers. And Steve tells the story about how he's a, he, was a, uh, he was an F-14 pilot in the Navy before he came in the FBI. And he tells the story. He was at the towers when they were hit, and he was watching them fall. He's he gets back. He he stumbles back to our office in Lower Manhattan there before they shut it down. It's just two o'clock in the afternoon that day. The, everybody's still caked with dust and stuff, and and they're on a conference call with the CIA and with with the FBI people liaisons to the CIA, and you know just the limit, preliminary information is coming in for on the hijackers. And he goes, "Do we know any of the names?" And they say, "Yeah, we know two of them." And they say those names and he, and he says, well, how do you know them? Those are the names I've asked you five times. And you said, no. And he said, well, we couldn't tell you at the time. And he says, you mother. Yeah. And, like, and he blew up his supervisor, who we also, you, we also hear from on the project, puts the, the phone call on, on hold. And he says, it's not the time. Don't lose your temper. We've got to fo- keep focus on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I'll remove you from this case if you lose your temper again. And so it was very tense. Wow. You know? And Steve... Steve still maintains that he at least would have been maybe been able to stop at least that one flight. Well, might have unraveled the whole thing too. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's now it's documented. Um, Ali Sufan, if you saw the looming tower, Ali is predominant is, is very prominently uh, portrayed in that. Ali was our, our Muslim agent that was in charge of, of the Al Qaeda thing too. He was Steve's partner and Ali was in Yemen at the time. Uh, debriefing some Al Qaeda people on that were in prison in, in Yemen on the USS Cole investigation when it happened, and, and John O'Neill was very good friends with Ali, and you know they you know, obviously we lost John in the in the towers. John died in the towers, but when the, when the North Tower collapsed, but um, 
you know, Ollie and, and Steve were on their trail. And um, these were guys related to the, the bombing in, in of the coal mm-hmm. and of, in the African East African embassy bombings. Steve still maintains that, you know, five times. And now we know that they knew and, and even some FBI people knew, but they were kind of on the intelligence side of the house. So they couldn't share the information across what they was now known as the Chinese wall and, and stuff. And it, it was funny because during the 9-11 commission hearings, George Tenet, the director of the CIA got up there and testified, mm-hmm. you know, no, all this stuff, we, that didn't happen. We didn't know it. And then the night of his testimony, after he said these things on the record, the phone call started ringing. This guy lied to the commission. That's bullshit. I've got it documented. And then, and then there was a flurry of phone calls around the beltway in DC and director tenant had to kind of come in and amend his answers. He, he testified the next day or a couple of days later, he, he requested to come back and amend some of his answers because he was made aware of information that he didn't know when he, which he knew he just tried to get away with not saying the truth. Um, but yeah, so so you'll hear all that. You'll hear from Steve. You'll hear from Ollie. Um, you'll hear from the people that were involved in the investigation. You'll hear from from our evidence people that were in in Shanksville, and that um, you know there's a there's a story I like to tell with um, where our guy from Quantico drove up. He's a, he he's one of the supervisors in our evidence response unit, and he drove up to Shanksville and kind of supervised that that operation. And he said like from where the teams were staying in a hotel to the site, you know, you draw along this country road, and there's this elementary school. Every day as he passed by back and forth, there were more like the elementary school kids would draw these posters and put them on the fence to say thank you to the because they knew the responders were kind of going mm-hmm. up in that road to lead to the site. And, uh, and he said, you know, they had finally finished and he was going home to see his family. And it was pretty it was a pretty harrowing two or three weeks he was there. And so he just decided, you know, I'm going out of town. I'm all checked out. I'm on my way home. I'm going to go into the school and thank the principal for putting all that stuff out there. Cause every day they spoke about seeing that stuff and, you know, and, and he said, um, he's, and it's an old school, one, basically one long hallway in the office in the front. And, and the, the principal, he tells the principal about this, that all of the FBI people saw it, appreciate it. And he said, Oh, wait one moment. And the principal, unbeknownst to him, the principal gets on, on the loudspeaker that talks to the whole school and says, yeah. FBI agent so-and-so is here and he wants to just tell, tell you thanks because the FBI agents going to the scene, all saw your poster. And all the kids came out of the classroom and flooded it. And he couldn't even tell the oh, story wow. without crying because he says like all these kids just wanted to come and touch him and hug him and thank him. And he was there to thank them. And he's he had two kids, school-age kids himself, and, and he just lost it. And and he tells that story in, in his episode. And then he tells the story about finally getting home the second night he's home, one of his sons has a little league game and the whole little community in Virginia where he lived, you know, knew what he did and stuff. And then at the end of his son's game, the two, the two teams, unbeknownst to him, they kind of did this without kind of got together. The two teams lined the field and sang the national anthem for him. Like he, again, he's, he lost it, you know, but you, you hear, you'll hear a lot of stories like that. A lot of, a lot of personal stories. You'll hear some, a lot about the investigation, you know, that happened in, in Yemen and in Pakistan, um, and a lot of human interest stories like that of people that were there just doing the recoveries and and just it, I think it's I think a lot of it's compelling. I, you know, you can listen to it. It's 17 episodes. You can listen to it almost as some of the episodes are standalone and you can see on Audible, you can see the description of each episode. If you want to hear just that story, you can listen to it. Some of them, some of the stories run over two or three episodes. But but yeah, I would, you know, if anybody has an interest in the history of, of that, of what happened prior to and leading up to and then the investigation afterwards. Look, it's it, I, I produced it and wrote it with some other people, but I'm very proud of the work that we did, but more so of 
what my colleagues did and we mm-hmm. were able to bring to light in, in their own words. You'll hear from them, both the, the human stories of the victims and, and, you know, and the investigation. Wow. That's a lot to take in. It's tough to talk about. It's one of those things where it's like, where were you when it happened? Because it touched us, but it didn't touch us as much as it touched you guys out on the East Coast. Yeah, sure. I mean, my brother was a cop that, and I didn't know if he had responded. That, and then we couldn't yeah. get in touch with each other for you know, a, a day, the next day. But our wives got in touch with each other, and then our families in Tampa were kind of a conduit. Because, you know, no cell phones worked. Everything was all, Manhattan was like a dead zone for communications mm-hmm. um, and stuff. So I ultimately found out he was okay. He ultimately found out that I was okay. Because, you know, I left Newark Airport on a United flight out of Newark. And everybody knew a United flight out of Newark crashed in Pennsylvania. My family's like calling my wife and say, what flight was Bobby on? You know, a flight out of Newark crashed and stuff and stuff. And she didn't know. And then when I landed, I couldn't contact her because all the cells were so jammed up and stuff. Yeah, it was... And and we've lost we lost two agents that day. I say two agents because Lenny was at Lenny Hatton. We lost. He was an active duty agent. John O'Neill, um, who was the, kind of the main guy in the looming tower. John was our special agent in charge of our terrorism division in New York for years, and he was the main Al Qaeda guy. He was he was the guy on Bin Laden's tail, and ironically, and Bin Laden got him first. But he had retired two weeks before and went to work as head of security for the World Trade Center. So he died in the North Tower. Okay. Um, but he was a legend in the FBI, certainly a legend in, in New York office. Uh, and he was a terrorism expert and a terrorism legend. And he died in the North. So I say two, even though John, they don't count John as dying because he, as an agent because he was retired. Yeah. But we've lost, I think, 15 or 17 agents since then from illnesses that they contracted mm. um, at Shanksville, at the Pentagon, and at Ground Zero. Um, cancers and stuff like that that were certified as, yeah, this is you got this because of the work you oh, did wow. there, and there's ways they do that medically, mm-hmm. uh, and and so we have a martyrs wall in Quantico of because these are counted as line of duty deaths, even though they happened years later, they're counted as line of duty deaths. Right, so your family yeah. gets benefits, line of duty benefits, and things like that. Their their names go on the martyr wall, and I just uh, I couldn't go back to Manhattan for 20 years, and it was my home, and I just went back in September for the first time in 20 years this past September because the FBI had a kind of an honors awards thing. And I got director Ray gave me an award. I get to go on stage with my wife and, and get this award. And it's all people that, cause I have some health issues related to nine 11 that I get through the nine 11 program, mm-hmm. uh, health program that I get taken care of. And so it was all the people that are under that program that are getting health care from their nine 11 exposure. And, and then of course the, the, our colleagues that are no longer with us got, posthumous awards and their families were able to. And I hadn't seen a lot of those, my colleagues in, in 20 years. And it was because I had transferred to LA and did the last 11 years of my career out in LA. Um, so it was good to be back. It was tough to go back down there. I got a behind the scenes tour of the 9-11 museum, which is amazing. Uh, I got through about 75% of it before, you know, my wife kind of tugged me and said, why don't we, she, she knows my triggers and she yeah. knows my stuff. So she kind of, yeah, I'll go back someday and finish it, but it's an amazing place. And yeah. It was a it was a kind of a pilgrimage of, of sorts. Yeah, I would love people to listen to after the fall and tell me what they think, good and bad, and you know whatever. I'm just so proud of the work that that our people did, that uh, that everybody did, really, that everybody did. And you'll hear it directly from them. And there's probably things in there that you didn't know that you'll hear directly from the people that. All right, so that's after the fall, and we can find that on uh, Audible, or is there other Audible, platforms Audible, that we can yeah, find so it on? No, it's an Audible okay. original. Audible's, uh, Audible owns it. Audible. Okay. It's an Audible yeah. original series. I would like to make it into a 
a TV, a scripted TV uh, series or whatever. So we're kind of hoping yeah. that 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 happens. Can't wait to listen to it. I'm gonna listen to it. Yeah, and uh, all you guys out there, listen to it, check it out, take the stories in. Remember, yeah, because we're getting to the time to where we have another generation coming up that doesn't know anything about what happened. Yeah, never even. Yeah, I was in high school. Yeah, you have college graduates now that were born after yeah. right. 9-11. Yeah. They already they already graduated college. I was a sophomore when that happened. All right, hold on a second. Before we get into the next uh next story, what we want to hear, Bobby. Oh shit. It's one of those stories where it's like, I almost died, or I'm gonna die. <laughs> right, write my last, yeah. last right. will and testament here. On my little plate here. I'm writing my my instructions. I'm in a, I'm in a sticky situation. Yeah. How am I gonna get out? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this is probably uh, most divers can relate to this one, especially especially surface applied air divers. Um, it was early in our days of surface applied air diving. And there was in the Long Island Sound, I was on the New York team, in the Long Island Sound, we had a downed aircraft at the uh, middle of the sound. What happened was, and I can't say the country the pilot was from, but I can tell you he was uh, from a foreign country and he was surveilled uh, circling Manhattan and taking photographs in a small plane by himself. The NYPD, I think, dispatched helicopters. He took off down the Long Island Sound, which is between Connecticut and Long Island, which is New York and Connecticut. And he ditched the plane right in the middle of this. Like if you drew a, a line halfway between Long Island and Connecticut, he ditched it along that line right there. And he, he floated and he got to shore. It's not that big. He swam to shore and he had like two Pelican cases with him. And he checked into a nearby motel and then he, then he vanished. And so we went and found the plane, small plane, a small single engine plane there. And they, they our foreign counterintelligence division um, wanted us to go at least get the log book and see what else is on the plane. They were dying to know what was in those two Pelican cases, probably photographic equipment, but we don't know. So they also don't want anybody to know we're doing this. Foreign counterintelligence and the FBI is their own division. They're like the secret squirrels. You know, everything's secret. They're the one, we had seven or eight floors in our office in Manhattan and their one floor, my my oh, badge, man. none of our badges work unless you were <laughs> like a foreign counterintelligence agent. That's what, they, li- the they liaisoned with the CIA. They, they, they probably had CIA guys working in there and stuff. So my badge would work on six of the seven floors, but that floor couldn't even get off the elevator. Um, so, but that's the division now that wants us to go and, and find the captain's logbook and anything else that's on the plane. So we have to do it at night. So they want us to do a night dive. We're on Agamas, and and so we're diving. And I think we're about, I don't know, I'm about, I think it was about ninety feet, maybe maybe a hundred feet. I get stuck in this small plane because it's really a, it's a single engine, right? So I accessed it through the back door there and got okay. Get stuck. I had a partner at the door, tending my umbilical from the door, you know, whatever. We get out when it's not really a problem. Um, but then from a hundred feet, I think we had just, we had just started our ascent or, or just about to start our, our, our ascent. So I think we're off bottom and I get like a really weird feeling like, it, it, like uh, my breath gets tough to take and stuff. And then the second one's even tougher and the third and come to realize that I got no air coming through my umbilical. Like, like there's no air coming from the surface. And my partner says the same thing. So we're furiously trying to get to our bailout bottles. Again, this is, 
kind of in the early days of like, was like, Hey, where's my belt? And it's dark. And like, you know, the, his lights flashing in my face, my lights flashing in his face were blinding each other. He, you know, Hey, can you turn my bailout on? Can I turn your belt? Like, and we're just panicking and we're out of air and we're screaming topside. Like we're out of air. We're out of air. Come to learn later that the guy, the guy that was the air console guy, not the console. We had, so we had a console guy, a logs guy, and an air guy. Well, the air guy's not paying attention or whatever. It didn't switch over the bottles. What he did was he switched and he forgot to put a new tank on there so that when he ran out of the tank A, tank B was already dead. So when he, you know, normally a tank A is done, you're supposed to switch before it's done, just before it's done. But if, you know, hey, hey, and he switches over to B and B's live. Well, he switches us over to B and B's dead too. Now he's got two dead bottles. Now he's scurrying to get new bottles up there and he's got to take them all, take the regular over. So like, we're done. We're, we've got no air. and We're probably about 80, 90 feet. Got a bailout, but we're panicking to get the bailout and I'm trying to get the bailout and I can't get. No, I forget what happened. I just know it was dark and I was blinded. And it's just one of those things where you have your emergency procedures and everything. And when you practice emergency procedures, they yeah. always go perfect, you know, and then when the shit happens in real life and you have to do it, it's a little different. And so I, I just remember going like, and, and Mike Timms, he was my partner on that dive. And then we laughed about it afterwards. We didn't laugh about it. When we got on the boat, back on the boat. Outside because we had a word with that guy. Um, but but we laughed about it. So we really thought we were both going to die. We just thought like this was it. We were like grabbing each other, trying to like, and then it's like, what do you do? Do you shoot to the surface from 80, 90 feet? Like you've been, we've been yeah, down there for ahead. how long? Let's see what happens. And, you know, <laughs> do you just take that chance? Because, you know, because we're, du- we're due to make a stop, right? We're due to make, I think, two stops at that point. I'm like, uh, you know, it's, is it better to, to shoot to the surface? Or, or drown, you know, so it's like, that was, that's literally going through your mind. And all this is happening in seconds, right? And, you know, it's like, you take that last breath and it just snake, snuck up on me. I remember like the first tough breath was like, well, that's weird. And then you don't realize. And then the second one is even mm-hmm. harder than the yes. first one. You start to and you're like, suck. your brain is not really kind of, this is not happening. Like your brain just doesn't want to go there. I think you're like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> that's even weirder. And and you're not in panic mode yet because your brain doesn't want to go there. And, and then when you go there, you're there a hundred miles an hour. And so for then it's like, and now you're like, now you're hyperventilating. And so. out of your back and then you forget. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait a second. I just got to turn a yeah. couple knobs. And you're trying to get to the bailout and you're like, how do I do this again? And you know, like, yeah, it, I did it. You know, oh, you'd yeah. always do it perfect in the pool, right? You always you know do it perfect in, in training. And then when it happens for real, but I mean, after, you know, that was, that was the only time I've had to go to bailouts before. Um, yeah. I mean, after that, but we were much more experienced with surf supplied and, and stuff. And we, you know, you know, we practiced it a lot more, <laughs> especially when we got into hats, then you practice it a lot more. Uh, your, your emergency procedures, you, you practice a lot more. Uh, and dr- the Navy drilled that into us and stuff, but that was, you know, in, in dark water, in deep dark, I mean deep, it's 90 yeah, feet, no, but so that was deep to us. And then when you do an emergency procedure training and you know you're going to take a dry breath because that's part of the process, yeah. it's not as panic-inducing as when it happens for real and you're, you're deep and you're dark and, and, and you're not ready for it. And then it happens, it's a different type of feeling. It's, it's not the same because we used to make guys run out of air in the pool for, for their EPs and stuff. And that, but it's completely different because, you know, when you can expect it and when you know it's coming, we try to make it like, 
occasionally we try to do it like as a surprise, like, oh, we're doing this training over here today, but we're not really, we're going to do EPs, but we're not, we don't want the divers to know. Right. But you know, you always kind of expect something like that, but when it's, when you're on a real job, you really don't expect that. And boy, when I take that second breath and it, I could only get like maybe a third of the way into my breath and it like choked me. And then, then there was nothing. And then it was like, okay, then it's like, oh, fuck, how, how long can I hold my breath again? And where's the, is it on the bottom or is it on the top? Like, where's the valve? Is it, is the bailout? Because, you know, some bailouts go, you know, that was always still a, a thing too. Do you, do you mount the bailout with the, with the valve at the top or do you mount it at the right. bottom? And, you know, certain people do it different ways. And so, so you got to kind of click into that mode and stuff. And it was, in the end, it was, it's fun now. It's fun to think about it now. But I just, like, even recounting this story to you now, I, I get a anxious because it wasn't fun then. And, and I can remember it not being fun. I can laugh about it now, but I can remember it not being fun at all at the time. Yeah, no, I. I <laughs> and that's every, right? I mean, isn't that every diver's, I mean, that's The Last Breath is about it. I mean, that movie, The Last Breath was, I, I got anxious just watching that movie. Um, and, and you know, that's every diver's fear. I mean, what's, what's, what's well, maybe a cocaine <laughs> shark, but what's much more fearful than like running out of air. It's like, that's yeah. it, you know? Oh, for sure. I remember the first time that I ran out of air with an AGA, you know, full face mask type of thing. I was down around 40 feet. Yeah. The same thing. You start to feel a suck. It's like, and then all of a sudden it's like, and then it just stops. And it's like, I'm out of air. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> Your instinct is to get to the surface. So I'm like, I held that last breath in right. and started going to the surface. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, you idiot. <laughs> Don't do that. You stupid bubbles, bubbles, blow so bubbles. Then, then, then I did the blow bubbles. raise your hand and go, ah, exhale to the rest of the surface. I got up. I was fine. But then I told the soup. It was a two man team. Oh, good. <laughs> it was a two-man team. At the, this was back in the day when That's I was just a single oh, yeah, yeah. doing a bridge inspection, two-man team. I get yeah. up to the surface. I'm like, dude, ran out of air. Tank's empty. I held my breath. And he, his face was like, what? <laughs> he got the O2 tank out, put me on O2 and everything. I'm like, <laughs> like I was oh, yeah, out. yeah, yeah. But why, why did he run out of air topside? Oh, it was scuba. It was an inspection on scuba. Single. Oh, you're on scuba. A, oh, oh. Yeah, forty wow. feet down. You just no with no what, no pony right. bottle. Did you? This just, was in the early. Uh, <laughs> did you not check your bottle pressure? I was busy. <laughs> I was busy working. I was busy. Working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be a no. man. Be a man. You know that. Be a man. To, they, be a man. That, yeah. No, but that reminds me of a. I I don't know if I I didn't tell you guys this story like. So years ago, I got contacted by the civil division of the Justice Department in Washington. The civil division, among other things, uh, it defends the U.S. government or government agencies against civil lawsuits. And in Philadelphia, a Philadelphia police diver was killed trying to rig a buoy that had sunk. So the Philadelphia Police Department dive team kind of was co-located. Well, they shared a parking lot with the Coast Guard because they were both on the water and stuff. And so one night, walk into their cars, they see one of the Coasties they know, and they start to have a chat. And the Coast Guard guys, oh, yeah, you know, the Coast Guard, again, this is many, many years ago, um, they didn't have a dive team. So it was like, yeah, we got this buoy down, and it's a, a, it could be a navigation problem and stuff. We need to get it. And he goes, oh, we'll do it for you. Well, you know, what do you need? And he said, well, we just need a, we need a marker just on it. We just need a marker so that we can have a, you know, crane or whatever. And so, oh, yeah, we can do that. So they get a guy... 
a three-man team, this is, but he's on scuba with no comms, and he's got a um, a shackle. He's got to undo the shackle and redo the, and put something through a redo the shackle. What he doesn't realize is his tending line. So he's he's on scuba, but he's he's yeah. harnessed into a tending line. He doesn't realize because it's dark, because it, all the muck and stuff, he can't see visibility shit. He puts his own tending line, oh. puts it through the shackle, and he oh, and he geez. bolts the shackle closed. And he's on his way up, and he gets about oh. 20 feet from the, the bottom, and he can't go any further. And the tender is pulling. Get them deeper. Yeah, so now they're working against each other because he's trying to fight to the surface. And he's he was an older guy on the dive team. He was in his 50s and stuff, and he basically has a heart attack and drowns. So his wife was suing everybody she's suing the, the police department the coast guard everybody so so i was called in to do a kind of analysis of the accident so i had to get the sops from them which they really didn't have any um and from the police department and stuff and then the coast guard and stuff so the coast guard was kind of exonerated because they were like well we just asked them that we didn't know they were going to do that um so so we were there rep- trying to get the coast guard removed from the lawsuit which they eventually did i think um but but it was i had to review a lot of their dive logs and stuff and it was just it was really dangerous really just bad bones they did just they didn't train enough they didn't have enough op- standard operating procedures. They didn't do emergency ballot, you know, procedures training enough and and stuff. But like, you know, like every story has like backstories and stuff, which is really weird because like the year before this happened, this same diver was on the dive team when there was like a waterfront fire at a big bar, right? And the fire department comes and the fire department dive team and the, the, the marine units from the police department come and he's involved. And there are a bunch of allegations that firemen and some of the Marine cops took a bunch of stuff from the bar that didn't burn. Right. As you know, cause as you know, they get in. So whiskey was stolen, beer, whatever, and stuff. So a big internal investigation happens and the dive team was part of the Marine unit. And so he was like an IAD snitch, this diver guy who died. So now when he dies, everyone's like, oh, my God, they killed him because he snitched on a bunch of his fellow cops because they stole stuff from the bar. So this was like an added layer of intrigue into this case, which I didn't have to deal with. But I knew from talking to the attorney at the civil division and then some of the PD, Philadelphia PD, guys that I interact with to get their stuff. Um, you know, there were people because because his his locker had been damaged. His car had been damaged mm. by guys that he he dimed out he snitched on and stuff over the over that year and then all of a sudden he winds up dead so you know they were like oh they killed him and there was no evidence of that because he it was it was him putting or allowing his tending line to kind of fall through that channel umbilical management was the huge mistake umbilical management uh sure so we kind of covered a lot of things i know there's much more stuff to talk about um Definitely want to thank you guys for listening to both part one and part two. Yes. And uh, hopefully, Bobby, we can talk to you sometime in the future. Maybe if there's like a, a question that we have about, you know, a certain case or something like that, or some of your new sure. endeavors, definitely have you on to talk about that new diving show. If sure. it gets some money into it, yeah, that'd be I would, awesome. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. It was a pleasant surprise to me. tell you the truth. You, you're, you're top on our list. When we first started the yeah, show. Yeah, when we first started, that's that's I told him, I was like, oh my God, I wonder if Lamar still talks to Bobby. And <laughs> yeah. we can have oh, Bobby thanks on. So much. <laughs> and then so we want to thank uh, Deep Sea Dandelion for for helping yes. facilitate that as well. Sarah, uh, I Big know you're listening now. Big part of the show. Huge part of the show now. 
and uh, thank you for your help. So with that, Bobby, thank you for coming on the Bottom Dealers Dive Shack. Thanks, guys. It was great. It's great to be back with you. And we will see you guys on the next episode of the Bottom Dealers Dive Shack. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. Make sure you like and follow on our social media pages on Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with your friends or anyone interested in commercial diving. The only way that uh, we can make this successful is if we do get a lot of people that are listening. We get more listeners, we get more sponsors, and that means more free stuff for you guys. That's right. We are hooking up all of our diver brothers and sisters in the trade. And uh, if you keep sharing and liking, we're able to do that a lot more. Our Instagram is at Bottom Dwellers DS. Our Facebook is Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack. And you can always like and follow me at LB Diver on both. The Bottom Dwellers Dive Shack is available on all podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Anchor. We also have it streaming on our website at thebottomdwellers.com. So keep listening. Keep it safe. Keep it salty. This is LB Diver, out.